八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八八。Hey everyone! Welcome back to another episode of Saturday the Fourteenth. We have a very special episode for you today, as you may have guessed from our beautiful intro vocals. Yeah, we are talking about synth music. We are. This is all. That's all that this episode is about. It's just synth music and nothing else. All synth, all the time. Yeah, not even horror synth, just like how we feel about 80s New Wave mostly. I'll feel good about it. Mostly positive. Emphasis on the mostly. Wait, you know what? Actually, we got this confused. That's next time's episode. This one is actually oh, shit. our right. Halloween special, um, which we have a very fun one for you today. We um, First off, I just want to say that there are going to be major spoilers throughout this for one of the most recent movie we have ever done on this podcast, which uh, is the brand new, spanking new Halloween movie that just came out like last weekend. And we're also going to talk about it and compare it to the original classic Halloween from 1978. So we're going to be doing a little side-by-side comparison. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. It might also be the most confusing episode we've done because there's the movie Halloween. From uh, 1978. There's the new movie Halloween. From 2018. There's the Rob Zombie Halloween. Which is garbage. There is the holiday Halloween. True, which is today. Yeah. The day that this is coming out. Happy Halloween, friends. Yeah, we're not recording this on Halloween, obviously, because we're not magicians. Uh, We're recording this. are we? Maybe we are. We're recording this on a very spooky, foggy L.A. night. It's chilly, by which we mean it's like 50 degrees out. I actually think it's only like 65. God, what happened to me? You know, it's what happens to everyone who moves to L.A. I used to be so much tougher, Maddie. No, you just used to wear coats. That's true. Yeah, that's true. But anyway, Halloween versus Halloween on Halloween, the Halloween special. We're very excited. Um, So, uh, like I said, obviously, there are huge spoilers for this. If you have not yet seen the 2018 Halloween, the one thing that we will give away to you in advance is it's so good. It was so much fun. (laughs) Just go see it. Go see it now. Pause this. Get a ticket. Go check it out. Come back and listen to the rest of it. We'll wait for you. Yeah, we'll still be here when you get back. Probably. Yeah, and we want you to know everything about the 2018 Halloween movie because, honestly, it is so good. So what's nice is also if you have not seen the original 1978 Halloween, it's still going to be very enjoyable. Yeah. Um, But there will be a bunch of Easter eggs and fun pieces that you will – extra goodies you'll get out of it if you have seen the original. Yeah, like, it'll still make sense, but, like, it's a much richer viewing experience if you've seen at least the original. Honestly, I would say if you've seen the full series, which I have not, but I have seen the first and the second and then this one. Um, And I think that that, you know, adds a lot to it. I've only seen the first one and then this most recent one, um, just because I haven't always heard the greatest things about some of these sequels. Yeah, Halloween is one of the interesting ones because there are so many sequels to it. I think it's one of the most sequelized of the big slasher movies from yeah. like the 80s, uh, 70s and 80s. And um, it gets rough, uh, in my understanding. I've heard that. And then it has the remakes. Yeah, I, like I said, I really personally do not like the Rob Zombie remake. I know that that's a somewhat, I think a somewhat controversial opinion because I know a lot of people really like some people really do some people really don't I've heard both 
things. Yeah, I felt like they ruined the mystery of the character and that there was a lot of unnecessary backstory. I feel like what really makes Michael Myers scary is the fact that he is just pure evil. He doesn't have a motive other than the fact that he enjoys killing. Yeah, honestly, seeing him as a bullied child did not make him a scarier villain. I feel like it would do the opposite. Yeah, it was really weird. Like, once you've heard him, like, whining and, like, complaining as a kid, it's not really scary to watch him as an adult. And also, then there's just, like... As a child, yeah, not as an adult. And then there's also, like, a graphic rape scene in the middle of it that does not need to be there and is just really fucked up and upsetting for no reason, so. Thanks, Rob Zombie. Yeah, so, um, as I understand it, the rest of Rob Zombie's horror uh, work is fantastic, but I would say that uh, Halloween is a bit of a whiff on him. And, you know, Rob Zombie is actually someone that we'll be talking about fairly soon, so um, not a slight overall on Rob Zombie. Everybody has a bad one in them from time to time. Um, I do really like some of his music. I'm not that familiar with. Rob I will Zombie's say, um, "Living Dead Girl" is a Halloween classic for me. Okay. Oh, oh, oh! Dragula is another one that's good. Ooh, those two always make it onto my Halloween playlist. Okay, so highly suggest if you are looking for some spoopy music to listen to, um, <laughs> that is very loud. All right, get, I love get your Rob Zombie spoopy. On. Okay, well, you know what? It is Halloween, so listen to a little Rob Zombie today. Let it all out. Have some fun. But until then... Until then, we are going to talk about the movies Halloween. And this might be a longer episode than normal. Um, So first, we're going to go through the original, which is the pinnacle. We've actually... We've talked about the original Halloween on this podcast before because when we talked in our very first episode on Friday the 13th, we talked a lot about Halloween because... It was basically the immediate predecessor in terms of horror, of slasher horror, and there's so many things that Halloween created that Friday the 13th and subsequent horror movies um, built off of. So go back and maybe listen to that episode after this episode if you want to get a little more sense of where the genre went from here, but let's dive right on in. Um, yeah, so as we said, this movie was made in 1978, and it was... A fairly low budget situation, so John Carpenter and Deborah Hill did a lot of work on this. It was uh, directed and scored by John Carpenter. And it was written and produced by both Carpenter and Hill. Yeah. Which is amazing because I feel like it probably wasn't all that common for men to write and produce horror movies especially. And it's still rare that it happens all that often. But in 1978, like, good on her doing this 40 years ago. Yeah. And not only, like, having her contribute to it in, like, a major way, but having like contributing majorly to a movie that became this iconic oh absolutely like there's a lot of stuff that i don't know you know it's hard to tell because i i obviously don't know deborah hill or john carpenter personally um deborah hill has sadly passed away but um so i don't know you know how much came out of each of their personalities necessarily but it does seem from what i've read and what i've seen that a lot of um the things that made this movie really unique and wonderful came from Deborah Hill. And of course also came from John Carpenter, but there is a lot of her in it. And yeah. I think that that's really important to remember. Definitely. I think he kind of gets held up as an icon of horror, which he absolutely should be. Um, but I think it's also very important not to forget about her. And this movie starred Jamie Lee Curtis in her first ever film. Yeah, she'd been on like a TV show before, but she'd never been in a movie, and this is her very first movie. Yeah, I was actually reading earlier this week that John Carpenter didn't really know who she was and wasn't that interested in her, and then found out that she was Janet Lee's daughter, and he's like, okay, cool, done, we're good here. Janet Lee, of course, was uh, the one who played Marion Crane in Psycho, so there is a major horror legacy situation There's happening here. There's a horror here. family. Yeah, they really are. They're the Scream Queens. They are. It's a title passed down from mother to daughter. And spoken about very much in Scream as well. Oh, yeah. Scream is... I mean, I love... I love Halloween. I love 
Friday the 13th. I love Nightmare on Elm Street, but, you know, I, I like I've talked about a lot. I really love Scream because it's so wonderful and self-aware, and so much of that comes from Halloween specifically. That And it even shows Jamie Lee. Yeah, it, they, they with, watched this movie. Exactly. Which I actually think is really funny. So I was reading, like I mentioned, um, I think a little bit last episode, the book Men, Women, and Chainsaws uh, by Carol J. Clover. Um, and she talks a lot about gender in... in um, slashes but also a lot of other stuff and she talked about how in horror movies people watch horror movies like in in um obviously in scream they're watching halloween and halloween they're watching the thing from outer space oh yeah which then john carpenter made his own version of he made the thing not that long after this um and then in the actually in the rob zombie halloween which is something that i really liked they're watching john carpenter's the thing oh that's cool yeah i actually haven't seen the thing <gasps> it's really good I it's know. really creepy. i've had it totally spoiled for me oh and in halloween 2 they're watching uh night of the living dead and he's like stalking this woman or like right up behind this woman while they're doing the he's coming to get you barbara that's amazing thing. it's awesome it's fantastic it's it's something that i think you actually notice kind of in a lot of horror movies like in a horror movie if someone's watching something it's probably a horror and movie. i was watching the trailer for sabrina earlier today and they also do the whole he's coming to get you blah, yeah. blah, thing and that and it's yeah horror it's this whole little like spider web of all these movies are connected in different ways yeah. and i think the fact that i mean even in the last couple minutes we've been able to talk about scream and psycho and the friday the 13th and how they all like directly reference each other or were inspired by each other or whatever and it's so cool that so many different horror movie makers and actors just are passionate about this yeah. genre and pay homage to it all the time it is fantastic i think it's what makes it a really special and unique genre and i think it's one of the things that i really love the most about this podcast is kind of connecting those dots and seeing i definitely where a year ago from. when we first started this podcast didn't get all these dots in the same way i didn't yeah. see the whole like world of horror that i see now yeah and it's really a, been a positive experience it is it's so it? here's to a year of a podcast yeah Max. this is our one year it is this is very exciting it's a little over a year but but still we're happy to be a year here in a couple weeks and we are still here to give you all of the horror movie knowledge that you desire yes so like we said it stars jamie lee curtis um it also stars donald pleasance as dr loomis um pj souls and actually a woman named nancy loomis as annie which i think is hilarious it is i just love how much the name loomis comes up it makes me want to name my firstborn child loomis you should i might we'll see what happens uh, so again, like we said, this is fairly low budge. Um, this was made for about three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, which I mean is a lot more in nineteen seventy-eight than it is now. But at the same time, it's not as big as some of the budgets for other movies. True, it's still you know it's it's fairly manageable. I was actually in a class earlier this week where they were talking about how most of the time when you have really good ROI in a movie, it's probably a horror movie, and I was yeah. like. I perked up while listening in class <laughs> and hearing someone talk about how successful horror movies are all the time. Obviously, with like one or two exceptions, like every movie we've talked about has just made such stupid amounts of money yeah. and they're made for such little money in comparison. Yeah. So, um, like we said, you know, these things always turn around. It ended up making about $70 million, um, which is insane. And again, even more when you think about today's yeah, standards. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's a ton of money. So, good job. Yeah. John and Deborah. Do you want to take us through the story, Mags? I would love to. So, we open up on Halloween night in 1963 in the little town of Haddonfield, Illinois. And we open with a really interesting um, POV shot. Uh, we see a sort of obscured view. We were walking around. We see these kids making out inside a house. We go inside the house. We go upstairs. There's a woman, a girl at her desk. Uh, she is not Mostly wearing naked. clothes. 
Yeah, her, her boyfriend had just left. Yeah. It was clear they were either like just having sex or about to have sex or something like that. And then all of a sudden, our naked lady is getting stabbed. By the person whose view we are looking at. Yeah, through. so we're watching this first person. She's screaming. We see the character leave the house. He goes down the stairs. He leaves her up there. We walk outside, and then they do a reveal shot in which we see that this was actually a six-year-old boy yeah, in a little clown mask. It's like this really cute small child. You do see his face. Some people talk about that you don't see Michael's face. You see it in the first five minutes of the movie. And you then do. never again. Not Well, there is actually a scene when uh, in the house towards the end where you do briefly see his face. You don't get a good look at him, but you yeah. do see him without the mask on. I guess you have to see like a small part of his face in the new one. Yeah. But again, not like a full frontal facial shot. Right. So then we flash forward about 15 years later. And Actually, exactly 15 years later on Halloween night, 1978. Technically, it's the night before. True. So, because we do start on October 30th. Yeah. And we find that Michael, who is the little boy, um, his psychiatrist is going with another woman who I think is a nurse. Yeah. And they're driving to go pick him up, not in their car, but like. They're going to be helping transport him from the hospital he's been in mm-hmm. since he was, like, incarcerated as a six-year-old. Right. And bring him to a new place. I think he might be going up for probation or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and they're having this conversation in the car. And she's like, he's a person. Like, don't be mean about him. And Dr. Loomis, who is a psychiatrist, is like, he's not. I don't know what he is, but, like, he's bad. He, and they talk about how he is, like, pure evil. Yeah. And he doesn't think that he should ever see the light of day again. No. He said he's known this kid since he was six years old. He's watched him grow up, and he knows that there's nothing behind his eyes but just evil, and that's all there is. And how he's so patient. He's just waiting for something. Yeah. And it's interesting, because he also said that this kid has never spoken a word since he's known him. Right. But, so, like, my question here is, how do you know someone if you don't speak to them? I don't think, like, just sitting and staring at a wall and being patient in a room necessarily indicates pure evil. I assume that that means that he has done some fucked up shit. Like, oh. that he's hurt someone or I mean, he killed kill, animals he or something sister. like that or just never shown any remorse or something like that. That there's, But I do think that that's interesting is that it, they, it makes it very clear that Dr. Loomis has this very strong opinion of his personality, but there is really... There's, like, I, it's you don't see any personality. How. Yeah. Which maybe that's also what it is, is that he just realizes that there is literally nothing to him besides wanting to kill. Yeah. But as they pull up to the hospital, they get there and there are just patients wandering out and about outside the gates. And I think it's the woman, the nurse, who says, like, oh, do they just let them out and wander like this? And he's like, no, something's up. So he actually, they stop the car and he gets out to try to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then someone ends up on top of the car, but we don't see him. No. But the implication is that it's Michael. Yeah. And Loomis is, like, freaking out about it. And she's freaking out. And so uh, she gets out of the car. and Yeah, he's, like, trying to attack her through yeah, the windows and but stuff. she manages to get away from him. But then Michael steals the car and he just drives off. And it's funny because he's not supposed to be able to drive. Because he's thing, been yeah. incarcerated since he was six years old. But he figures it out. Yeah. And they actually mentioned that. They're like, he doesn't know how to drive. And, and he's like, well, he's doing a good job now. Yeah. So. <laughs> I think it's mentioned later in the movie. Yeah. Um. So they're like, shit, this is really bad. 
um, this is a huge problem. And, and in the meantime, Michael gets back to Haddonfield, Illinois, and he ends up, you know, he was in his white hospital uniform, but obviously that's not the uniform that we know him in. No. He gets that uniform by murdering a car mechanic and taking his jumpsuit. Which we don't see until no. a couple scenes later. We find this um, deserted car with a dead body in the bushes that's naked, and we realize that, yeah, Michael has taken this blue jumpsuit. There's also a dead dog in the bushes or in one of the fields that they're walking by. And yep. the comment on it when they find it is, he got hungry. Oh, I missed that entirely. Yeah, there's, he kills two dogs over the course of this movie, which upsetting. But one, you don't see him actually kill it. But the implication is that he killed it and then ate it, which is like, Jesus Christ. I missed that entirely. Yeah. And that's pretty crazy. It's fucked up. But yeah. we briefly leave this whole tense scene and uh, we get to know a new person. Laurie Strode. Who is sweet kind. and kind. It's funny. So, I mean, obviously this is Jamie Lee Curtis. And maybe it's just because I've only known who Jamie Lee Curtis is in, because of her adult work. Because I mm -hmm. saw her, everything she did as an adult long before I saw this. But she even kind of still looks like a full-grown woman when she Dude, was, like, very she's young. she's the youngest member of her like friend group but she just always looks like she's like 35 years old yeah like on close-ups on her face you can tell that she's really young but from far away it's like partially her clothing part of it i think is just because she's so tall and she kind of like is built like an older woman to a certain extent true and she is also very covered up which is something that's interesting like, she when is. you first meet um michael's sister judith she's, she's naked. naked but when you first meet um jamie Laurie, she is like she has long tights and a sweater and a long skirt and like she's very very covered up which is something interesting that I don't know was necessarily intentional, but um, it is a big juxtaposition. Yeah, and even between her and her friends, because like her friends are all they're like fun girls who like yeah. want to hook up with boys and kind of make fun of her for being such a studious girl. Yeah, so we we're introduced to her first at school, um, and she's sitting in no, oh no, with the kid because she has to go up in this right. Yeah, so we're introduced to her first at her home. Um, where her dad runs a realty company, and so they're trying to sell the old Myers house in town, which is where Michael Myers killed his sister. And she's going to drop off the key or something. Yeah, I think the... she's leaving the key under the mat so there can yeah. be a showing that day. And so she goes out to do that before school, and she runs into the little boy that she babysits, Tommy. Yeah. Uh, and they're walking along, and obviously they have this really like cute little like babysitter babysitter relationship. Um, and she's like, oh, I have to stop off at the Myers house first. And he's like, no, don't do that. And she's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, no, it's like, it's haunted. Like, it's really bad. Like, it's really dangerous. Don't go in there. And she's like, it's fine. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, he's very insistent that she not go anywhere near it. But she's like, whatever, it's okay. So she goes up onto the porch and she, like, puts the key wherever it's supposed to go. And you see that Michael is inside. Yeah. But that, they don't interact there. Like, she just goes on her merry way and they keep having this conversation. And she gets to school. But you see, when Tommy walks off and leaves her alone, you see Michael kind of watching her from a distance. And she's singing this cute little song that apparently Jamie Lee Curtis made up on the spot for Oh, it. really? That's so cute. Yeah. I like that. Because they couldn't get the rights for her to actually sing a real song because their oh budget was $325,000. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little creepy, a little ominous. We see her sitting in class, and she's just talking about fate. Yeah, and she's just, like, staring out the window, and she sees Michael in a Halloween store mask in a couple scenes we find out there's a Halloween store that was robbed and they just stole like a Halloween mask and rope yeah which and is upsetting so that tells us where he got his mask and also what the fuck is he planning on doing with this rope yeah don't worry y'all will find out oh yeah so but she's looking out the window and he's there and then she gets called on in class and has to give an answer but she just, still gives a great answer she does and then she looks back out the window and he's gone 
turns out this will be a theme of seeing Michael somewhere and then turning back and he's gone. Yeah. That is very um, heavily relied on in future movies as well. Yeah. So she's, like, throughout the day she kind of sees him around and when she's walking home with her friends she notices him again or she thinks she sees him behind a a bush. Well, at some point he's driving in a car, the car that he's stolen, like, stares at them and her mm-hmm. best friend screams at the car. Yeah, she's like... Stop. He, like, he goes. He goes like speeding by them really fast. She goes, "Speed, kill, slow down, creep, or something like that." And then he just stops. Yeah. Except he actually it looked like he was kind of going slow, and I was like, "What? What is she actually criticizing him for?" At first, I thought, "Is she yelling at him because he's going so slowly?" But that's kind of a normal speed. Yeah. I think he was supposed to be going fast. They just like showed it slowly because they had to show him staring out the window. Right. But yeah, he stops, and then later he, I think he turns around or something like that mm-hmm. because they're as they're walking eventually they do see him in a bush like way out in front of them yeah and she's like nervous about it but her friends are like oh making jokes about it and like making jokes about how like oh you scared another one away when like they go up to that area yeah and he's not there because laurie is a bit of a not a prude but she's not really concerned with boys she doesn't really date they all think that she's too smart for them Mm -hmm. which is true she is way too good for any of them but also, it's just like this was a real thing that people were worried about in the late 70s is that boys didn't want to date girls who were too smart. And she was smart and capable. And so she wasn't like her friends hooking up with boys on on Halloween night instead of babysitting and surviving. Yeah. And so Loomis meets up with, um, he gets into town and he meets up with the sheriff, who is actually her friend uh, Annie's dad. Um, and he kind of explains, you know, what happened to the you know, what happened at the, um, the break-in at the hardware store, what he took, and they kind of actually have a brief interaction where they don't really interact, but, um, Lori and Annie are driving around in Annie's car, and they drive by the hardware store, and they're smoking a joint. Yeah, it's great, because they're smoking, and then they see Annie's dad, and she's like, oh, shit, like, he's a cop, so they have to, like, put it out and try and, like, air out the car a little bit. And yeah. then Annie's freaking out after they talk to the dad briefly that he can smell everything. And yeah. It's no, a really funny Annie's moment. like, whatever. And Lori's like, he could smell it. I know he could smell it. Because Lori's a little square. Oh, I thought it was the other way around. No, but you're right. So. Annie's, yeah. Annie's like, whatever. I smoke pot and talk to my honest, dad all the time. I was really sleepy the last time I watched <laughs> this. Uh, I did watch the entire thing. I was just a little on the sleepy side. Yeah. No worries. Um, so they're, like, kind of... Loomis is freaking out. Oh, yeah. and the Loomis cop- is like, this is a bad situation. Yeah, and the sheriff just doesn't really care that much. He doesn't think. He was like, how is he going to make it here? He doesn't know how to drive. Because it's like 150 mile. It is. And then trip. he's just not that worried. He doesn't think it's actually going to happen. But they go to the graveyard where the sister is buried. And her headstone has been removed. And so for Loomis, that's like undeniable proof yeah. that it's Michael who's doing all this. And the sheriff is like, no, nah, this is just like kids messing around. But Loomis is like... I don't care. I'm going to stake out the house. Yeah. So he decides he's just going to keep an eye on the house. While the sheriff is going to patrol that night. Yeah. So that night, they all have this big plan, right? All of them are supposed to be babysitting. The kids. All the girls are supposed to be babysitting. So Lori is watching Tommy Doyle. Um, Annie is watching a kid named Lindsay Wallace, who is now a real housewife. Really? Kyle Richards played Lindsay Wallace and is now a real housewife of... Some city. Orange County? I don't really know. Somewhere. And then Linda, who is their third friend, is just, like, planning on hooking up with her boyfriend that night. She's not supposed to be babysitting anybody. I don't. Yeah. And so Annie goes out to pick up her boyfriend, I think. Yeah. Or the plan is Annie is going to go out to pick up her boyfriend. And so because of that, she drops off 
Lindsay across the street to hang out with Tommy and Lori. And Lori's like, are you kidding me? Like, you're just dumping the kid here with me and I have to go, like, watch them and you have to go have fun. And she's like, yeah, but, like, they talked about boys earlier and she was like, well, like, as a favor, I I talked to Ben Trammell, who I know you like, and he's going to, like, take you to the dance. And she's like, why did you do that? Don't do that. Like, she freaks out. Um, So they, like they kind of established that like her friends are party girls and she's not really like that. Um, and so, uh, and one, yeah, so she has the two kids over there and Annie's going to like go over and hang out with her boyfriend. And so Lori and the two kids are watching the scary movie. They're watching the thing from outer space. And meanwhile, Annie gets a surprise visitor at her house. She's like getting all ready and she gets in the car and she's, you know, gonna go see her boyfriend, and she's all cuted up, and then in the back seat is Michael Myers. Yup. And he does not care what she's wearing. Maybe he cares a little bit. I mean, would you rather kill someone who's wearing something pretty, or kill someone who's wearing something not pretty? This is what their ghost is gonna wear, Maggie. That's true. I guess it's nice you that he You always have wear... to make sure you look good, because if you die, that's what you're gonna be wearing forever. Oh, no. I know. I wear a lot of sweatpants. If you die while wearing sweatpants, at least you'll be a very comfy ghost. That's true. I'll be comfy in the afterlife. Yeah. <laughs> so, Annie gets killed. R.I.P. Um, R.I.P. Annie. So, earlier on in the night, um, Linda had called um, Lori, right? Linda's yeah. the other friend who's still alive. And she answered the phone, and she was she had her mouth full. Yeah, she was chewing, and it just said, like, I was watching it with subtitles because I watched everything with subtitles, and it just said, like, chewing noises on the other end and I couldn't I'd been a while since I've seen the movie so I couldn't really remember what was going to happen and I was like what's happening here why are there just chewing noises <laughs> and but Lori thinks it's an obscene phone call at first and so she hangs up and this is before all of the babysitting stuff starts this is just at her place um and she's noticed Michael around and stuff like that and she's a little creeped out anyway so she thinks this is a creepy phone call turns out it's just Linda chewing and they have a normal conversation but keep that in mind yeah that's just important to know for the next part yeah. Um, so around the same time that Annie gets killed, Linda and her boyfriend, Bob, are over at, they head over to the house that Annie had been babysitting at. Because they think that they're going to meet up with Annie and her boyfriend there, and they're all going to have like a weird make-out 70s couple night. I don't know. Did people used to do this? I never did this stuff in high school. Like, I was like a very nerdy, good girl to begin with, but like, I was never like, we're all just going to go You never hang had makeout and... parties, Maggie? No. Like, I dated guys and whatever, but I was never like, oh, me and my friends are going to meet up no. and we're all just going to make out with our boyfriends. I like... also never had makeout parties. It's fine. That's weird, right? No, it's, it's a little weird. Maybe it's normal. I don't know. We were just like the nerdy kids in school who weren't invited to makeout parties, probably. I guess. Well. Anyway, so she gets over, they get over to the Wallace house, which is the the name of the family that Annie is supposed to be babysitting for, and they're like, oh, it's empty, interesting, let's go have sex in their bed. Yep. Like, immediately, they're just like, let's go upstairs and bang it out. Yep. So they do that. teenagers. Yep, so they go upstairs, they bang it out, they're having a good time. And um, Linda goes, Linda convinces Bob to go get her a beer from downstairs, which, so also now they're stealing these strangers' beers, which, whatever. Um, Or no, he has beer in his car, never mind. He brings the beer. So... Linda's like, go get me a beer. Bob's like, okay. No, well, first he's like, well, you go get me a beer. And she's like, hmm. He's like, okay, I'll go get you a beer. <laughs> she also has great hair. She has, like, this she long does. 70s hair with, like, little, like, mini pigtail things on top. And yeah. I love it. I'm obsessed with 70s hair, apparently. There's some great 70s hair. There's some I felt, weird 70s I'm pretty hair. sure if you stuff. go back and listen to the Friday the 13th episode, I'm also very into the hair then as well. There's a bowl cut that you're really into in that episode. There is a fantastic bowl cut there. <laughs> so Bob goes downstairs to get... 
Also worth noting that just Linda's naked now. Oh, like, she's just she's just completely like, naked for completely most of her naked. scenes. Yeah. yeah. So Bob goes down to get the uh, the beer, and he has an unfortunate run-in with. Michael Myers. Yeah, so we already know that Michael's kind of been hanging out in this house because he's already killed Annie. They know that Annie's just still out. Right. And he's been sort of around the neighborhood in general. Like, we've seen him watching a lot of people. We saw him kind of creeping on Annie before he killed her. Um, So now we know that he's there. And he makes an entrance and he strangles Bob. Uh, He holds him up against a door and he strangles him around the neck. And once he's dead, he shoves a knife through his chest. And then he looks at him and he sort of cocks his head to one side. And I guess the direction that Carpenter gave uh, the actor was, you should look at him like you're looking at a butterfly collection. So it's sort of like he's pinned him to the board and he's just admiring it. That's interesting. It's really fucking creepy. I was also talking to, I think it was Paul did some reading on this. And he said that he was looking up the direction that the actor who was playing Michael was given. And it was really like, okay, walk from spot A to spot B yeah. without showing any emotion. Yeah. Just like, okay, just walk from this spot they to this spot. They didn't really cast him exactly. It was just like a guy that they knew. Yeah. And so he was playing like a person who didn't have any like emotions really. And I don't know, maybe the only feeling he ever got was when he killed people and it was a feeling of excitement. That's definitely a theory that comes out in the new yeah. version. Yeah. And in order to get that effect, they just gave this guy who didn't really know what he was doing zero directions. He was like, I guess I'll just walk here now. <laughs> it and worked. It. it worked really well. So now what he does, when we when we go back upstairs to Linda, she's chilling, and then we see a shape appear in the doorway, and he's wearing Bob's glasses. But the shape. The shape, which is maybe. what they call him in the uh, credits. credits. Um, he's got a sheet over his head like so a he ghost. So like a ghost. He's a spooky ghost. But he's got Bob's glasses on. So she's like, oh, Bob, stop fooling around. But Bob doesn't say anything. No, she just, starts to get mad at him. She's like, where the fuck's my beer, Bob? He does, she doesn't say fuck, but she like, gets yeah. upset. And then she's like partially covered with the sheet. And then she like reveals her boobs. And she's like, do you like what you see? And he just doesn't say anything. Or do anything whatsoever. Yeah, and she's like, fuck you. And so she goes over to the phone. And she's like, whatever, I don't care. I'm going to call my friend. And so she calls Lori. But right as Lori picks up... Michael starts strangling her. But Lori thinks that this is another joke sort of phone call from her because she's already gotten the chewing phone call earlier. And she goes, oh, Linda, like earlier we got your famous chewing noises and now I get your, fam- your, like, your famous moaning noises because it kind of sounds a little sexual. It the sounds way that super he's- sexual. Yeah. Like her moan, like her choking noises sound a lot like sex. Yeah, they do. Um, and so she literally listens to her friend die and does not realize what is happening. Um, and so with the two of them dispatched, Michael moves on. Well, first though, Lori does get a little worried about what's going on here. Because Annie, Annie has she hasn't never heard from up. Annie. Yeah. And then Lori, like she got this phone call and she thinks it's Lori, but last time when she hung up, Lori called back. Yeah. This time, like she never hears anything from Lori. Right. And she tries calling the other house and she can hear the phone ringing and no one's picking up. Yeah. And she saw, like, the light on and the light off and all that. And so she's getting a little worried. And so, she's, she, yeah, she's smart. She knows what's, like, something is weird. And in the meantime, Loomis has just found Michael's, the car that Michael stole. And he's he, like, oh, fuck. That like, he's on this street. Yeah. We gotta worry about this. Yeah. But Lori decides she's gonna put the kids to bed and then go across the street just to, like, kind of check out what's going on. Yeah. And, like, see what her friends are up to. Because mm-hmm. she was also, like, told that she could, should come join the party afterwards. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing the scene and texting Maggie, just saying, you know what, Mags? If I ever call you and it sounds like I'm having sex, don't just, like, come over, un- <laughs> like, uninvited to my house. Because, like, a best-case scenario, 
I am having sex, not dying. And then you're just walking in on that. Worst case scenario, you're going to find my dead body everywhere and then potentially be killed by whoever killed me. Like, there's no good scenario in this. Just and the don't convenient do it. thing is that you live on the opposite side of town from me. So it's a little harder. So I'm not just going to walk across the street, you know? For now. What happens now. when we buy, like, adjoining mansions? Yes. Then I will check on you. There'll but I'll be, have a bullhorn. I'll be tunnel. like, I'm coming inside. And if you're just enjoying yourself, Cover, cover up. up real quick. And if you're a murderer, get on out of there. I hope you use, like, the old-timey radio voice that you just used. Yeah, that's the only way I use bullhorns. It's that Good. or nothing. Yeah. Sounds uh, <laughs> So she goes over there, and in very quick succession, uh, she finds the bodies of Annie, Bob, and Linda. Yeah, but they're all in very interesting places. Yeah, they're, like, in... Like, like closets yeah, and Yeah, two different closets, but then Linda's body is, is... posed on the bed with Judith's headstone above her. Yep, and she's, like, super bloody and... Which is funny, because she was choked. Yeah. But then, I guess, stabbed. I don't know why he, like, stabs people after choking them, but it's a thing, I guess. It's a choice. Um, but, yeah, she looks like she's been stabbed, and also um, she is naked wearing underwear in the same way that his sister was. Yeah. And, yeah, that's something. Yeah, so there's obviously a connection there. And so she sees them, and then Michael appears, and they fight, and he he kind of cuts her arm, but she gets away, and she runs back to the other house, and she just barely gets inside. She Well, she had locked the house when she left, but she right. lost the key somehow. So she has to bang on the door and have him have Tommy open it. And he does open it, um, and then she, like, gets inside, and she locks it, and she's like, okay, whew, everything's fine. And she turns around and sees that one of the windows is open. Yeah. And so Michael is inside of the house. And so they have a fight, and she manages to stab Michael in the throat with a knitting needle. So then she has the kids go upstairs. She, like, knocks on the door. She's like, it's okay. And she, he was like, is this the boogeyman? And she's like, no, it's okay. Like, he's dead. And the little boy says, how do you know? And she's like, well, I killed him. Mm-hmm. And they're talking, and all of a sudden the boy starts getting really scared. And turns out that she did not actually kill him, despite nope. stabbing him in the throat with a knitting needle. He is right behind them and coming upstairs. So she's like, get in your room, lock the door, just... I'll fucking deal with this. Yeah. And she runs and she hides in a closet. She, like, outruns him somehow. Yeah. But she manages to get into the closet. Yeah, but but before getting into the closet, she, like, opens up the balcony door and, like, makes it look as if she, like, went outside and then gets into the closet, closes it, ties the closet closed with a tie, Mm -hmm. and hides in the back corner. So even if he, like, looks through the slots, he still can't tell that she's in there. But he figures it out. Like, he goes and he checks out the balcony and he's still like, no, she's obviously in there. So he starts smashing through with the knife into the, uh, into the, um, closet doors and she in a brilliant moment of genius grabs a wire hanger from the closet and shoves it into his eye yeah she like first molds it a little bit to make sure that it's like pokey and all that jazz Mm -hmm. and then she yeah and he like freaks out and he's you know upset he doesn't scream or anything but you, you you can tell it hurts he gets out he drops his knife she grabs the knife and she stabs him and then she like he's he's out he's dead and so she gets the kids and she's like listen you guys you need to Get out of here, run across the street, go to the neighbors, you need to call 911, you need to tell them that there's a man in the house, and you need to, like, get someone over here right away. And then she says, now do as I say. Yeah. And I think that this was another place recently where she made a huge mistake, Mm -hmm. in that she had a knife in her hand. She stabs Michael multiple times with a knife, then leaves the knife next to his body. Yeah, that was not a good move on her part. But then, I mean, she did literally stab a man several times. She probably thought he was dead, but he had already come back from the dead once. Yep. More or less. More or less. So... The kids run out the door and they get away. But they run right by Loomis. Yes. Who then do. is like, oh, I think I found the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably know where he is at this point. Yeah. yeah. 
So Lori is very lucky because while she is cowering in the hallway, recovering from everything that has just happened, you see Michael in the background. Oh, he's like laying flat on his back. And yeah, just his top half just like sits up. He must have unbelievable core strength. I I believe that. Floops himself right on up. Also, I realized in this is like he's very ageless looking because you can't see any of him. But he's literally supposed to be 21 years old. He's super, super young. Yeah. I didn't realize how young he was until rewatching it. Yeah. Um, and you briefly actually see in, in the following scenes because Loomis runs up inside and he manages, like, right before Michael is about to kill Lori again, he, like, bites him off well, and he shoots like, him. he stabs Lori's shoulder at yeah, some point. Yeah, yeah. But, well, yeah, he does end up shooting my, or Michael six times straight into the chest. Yeah, and, and then Michael... Michael goes, falls off the balcony. Right, and you briefly see Michael's face during the scene. His eye is fucked up, but other than that, he's just a normal-looking young guy. Like, mm-hmm. he looks like a relatively handsome young dude. Um, and he falls off the balcony, and she's like, oh, my God, you know. They, they look down off the balcony. He's laying there, clearly dead. And she they talk for a second. She's like, is that the boogeyman? And Loomis is like, yes, it is. And then they look back out the balcony. He's, he's gone. Nowhere to be found. And Loomis is kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. And Lori's like, what the fuck? And so she's, like, screaming and freaking out. And the movie ends with Michael's point of view walking through the neighborhood and his heavy breathing. So you yep. know he's still out there. Yeah, I think he ends waiting. up at his house again, the Myers yeah. house. And that's the end. That is it. That is the OG Halloween, which is a great, great movie. It's a really well done movie. I mean, the writing is not always fantastic. The dialogue there for are a lot of the teen lines girls that are, are horrible. Like, oh man. However, I do think that Lori is a great character. Yeah, even her friends, I think, are really interesting. They're um, kind of shitty friends. <laughs> yeah, but who who didn't have shitty friends in high school? You know, like. Yeah. Who wasn't a shitty friend in high school? That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, I think just 16-year-olds aren't really the greatest people usually. Yeah. So that's completely fine and realistic to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, Michael's a really interesting character because usually you do give these bad guys some sort of dark history and, like, a reason why they are the way they are. Like, you have Jason who was who died drowning when mm-hmm. he was a kid and so he's like taking revenge on people or his mom is and freddie was you know burned because the whole child molestation angle well it's only molestation in the new movie it what was just murder in the original he was just killing right. kids and then the new one set him out as like also molesting them which was completely unnecessary yeah um i don't think there's ever a need to add Remakes sexual just love violence to add a sex crime like there's no need to add sexual violence just for the sake of like making it worse like murder's fine you don't also need to sexually assault someone in the process yeah that's like, enough you just can just kill them that's fine um, but I think Michael is interesting because he is one of the only ones who doesn't actually have a real reason. No, and I think that that's sort of what weakened the um, Rob Zombie, the Rob Zombie for me is that it was almost like, here, pity this poor bullied kid who has this shitty home life. But that's not what you want out of Michael. It makes him less scary, and it's not he's not a person to pity. No. He's a person to just be afraid of. Like, I kind of think of slashers sort of in a similar way of folklore, where the characters don't need to be super deep necessarily. They can just... They, form a you know a certain archetype and that's okay that's and enough. i think if they never had motives like let's say jason didn't have a motive freddie didn't have a motive he was just like an evil demon type thing Candyman wasn't doing it for any reason other than just he like slashing people and yeah. setting them up um i think that could get tiring after a while because they all kind of start to blend together so yeah. having one that is like the quintessential just he is driven by a desire to kill and nothing else i think that's important and i think it's also important that he was the first one of these really i mean like yeah. uh, i guess you could say that um um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, in a way, is sort of a slasher as well. 
Sort of. There isn't really very much blood at all. No, but there's also not that much blood in, in um, Halloween. There's a lot of stabbing. There is, but not actually that much blood. That's true. Um, but, I mean, even Leatherface, you get generally an idea of his family situation and, you know, what happened. You, you hear from his brother, you know, a little and bit about what happened to his family. You see his grandfather, like, drinking blood. You see yeah. his crazy dad who's forcing his kids to go into this life. Yeah. You get a good amount of his, like, you get a lot more of his family dynamics than you do about Michael's but from all you can tell Michael's really is a normal family situation yeah he's just bad that's all that there is starting at six years old yeah he just wants to kill people um so I think that it's kind of you know important to talk a little about who made this movie and um we're gonna focus mostly on John Carpenter but again you know Deborah Hill was also very important so we'll touch on her as well so by the time that Carpenter made this movie he'd already won an Academy Award which is crazy. Uh, so he was a film student. He went to USC. Boo. <laughs> and while he was at USC, he made a film called Captain Voyeur, which is about a guy who gets obsessed with his coworker and starts stalking her, which I think is really interesting because that's definitely something that you see as a major, you know, stalking is a huge part of the Halloween franchise. Um, so it's, it's something that a lot of people sort of point to as an origin for the ideas that would show up later on in Halloween. And then after that, he helped make a movie um, called The Resurrection of Bronco. Do you think that's Broncho or Bronco? Bronco? I I would guess Bronco. Bronco. The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, which is in 1970, and that won the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film. After that, he so he kind of got into um, movies, and he was mostly doing sci-fi. He made um, a movie called Dark Star, which is sort of like a parody um, space odyssey type movie. Um, and he did action movies, which I found this really interesting. He did the original um, Assault, on Precinct thir- uh, Assault on Precinct 13, which James DeMonico, who created The Purge, wrote the remake for. Oh, that's so interesting. A little tie in there, a little connection. Let's see how many of these movies we can reference. I know, I'm trying to get them all in. <laughs> um, and so right before he made Halloween, he made a thriller starring Lauren Hutton, which was called Somebody's Watching Me, which is also very, very heavily focused on voyeurism and stalking and a young woman is being followed John by someone. Is John Carpenter like a voyeur? Or does he have like weird voyeuristic fantasies, do you It's think? a little hard to tell because it might be like a James DeMonaco thing where it's not what he is interested in as much as what he finds unsettling. That could be, Which yeah. is maybe the idea of someone watching you is just something that John Carpenter is very creeped out by. Rather that than like makes a lot venting of a secret voyeur fantasy or anything like that. Yeah, no, that's very sensible. Um, so... Despite all of that, the idea for Halloween wasn't like 100% Carpenter or Hill's idea. He was actually approached by um, Erwin Yablons, who was a producer at Compass, uh, who wanted to make a movie about babysitters being stalked and killed. And Carpenter was like, okay, awesome, let's do it. I mean, wasn't this movie originally called like The Babysitter Murder? Yeah, that was the original. And it's a little, I guess it's a little fuzzy on who actually decided to name it or to have it set on Halloween. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis suggested that it was Deborah Hill, but she wasn't actually around during the writing process, so I don't know if that's just something that she was told later on. Wikipedia says that it was uh, Yablon's idea for that as well. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. I hope that I am. Um, but that it was that it was his idea to set it on Halloween as well, but that, that came after they'd already started writing it. But you said Hill was not involved in the writing? Jamie Lee Curtis wasn't involved in the writing. So when oh, she says it was Hill's idea When to, you said she, yeah. I thought you were saying that Hill wasn't. I was like, but No, Hill's she definitely literally was. Like she, she was very important. And in fact, um, she grew up in Haddonfield, New Jersey. And so when it came time to figure out what town it was going to be in, she decided to have it be Haddonfield, Illinois. That makes sense. Uh, and I actually have a quote here um, by her about why she wanted that location. She said, I wanted a Midwest sleepy town. The idea of pulling off the veneer and seeing what lies beneath intrigued me. 
What's so interesting to me about horror movies is they take place in small towns where they don't have a huge police force. You put the story in a sleepy town, really beautiful homes, nice full trees, it seems safe. You think nothing could go wrong there and nothing could be further from the truth. Every town has a secret, every town has that lore of something that went horribly wrong with it. What inspired me was Rear Window, where you pull off the veneer and have a peek inside each of the apartments. The idea of pulling off the veneer and seeing what lies beneath has always intrigued me. Which is interesting, because that's so in contrast to, for example, Candyman, which is like one of the only urban horror movies you usually yeah. see. You very rarely see them that take, in, like, take place in these like really big urban cities. Yeah, but again, I mean, it's hard to tell where that came from, because like, is that the norm because... Um, Halloween made it so scary to just be in a normal suburban place because you think about the ones that came after that like I mean Friday the 13th was in Out in the Woods which is kind of more similar to like a um, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre where they're out kind of in the middle of nowhere I mean Night of the Living Dead is also in the middle of nowhere true but then you have um, Nightmare on Elm Street which is very suburban Mm -hmm. you have Scream which is very suburby but you rarely see them take place in like downtown LA yeah almost never yeah I would say that I wonder that's why like for me living in a city almost feels more like safer is because of that like I loved living in Boston and downtown because having just like a big city outside right I think it's it's kind of nice because it almost like explains I mean there there is the the thing of you don't have to worry about like a murderer creeping into your big empty house or anything like that because you don't have a big empty house but also like if I hear a weird noise in the middle of the night living in like in the middle of Hollywood like I have a ton of neighbors and they're awake at all hours of the day and it's really noisy and our walls are thin and like people walk by our apartment all the time so like there's reasons for that yeah whereas when I was growing up in New Hampshire like every time I heard a sound inside my house I was like this is it the murderer's here and like (laughs) so yeah, one of these movies have now taught us to fear suburbia. I'm really actually honestly super glad that I didn't watch Halloween when I was a child because I would this movie would have scared the shit out of me. Like I would not have been able I to I still get freaked out sometimes um staying at my parents' house. Yeah, same up here. Up in Sierra Madre cuz they live up in the fucking woods. Yeah. There are lots of animals around, which is kind of cool. But at the same time, like if you hear something, it's either an animal or like someone's in your fucking house. Yeah. Or there are no um cars just driving by on the street right yeah you don't have any close by neighbors to do that stuff and yeah. it freaks me out i totally get that i feel the same way when i go home to new hampshire still something i actually found really really interesting is that carpenter's very inspired by like classic directors in a way that i wasn't really expecting him to be but it kind of makes sense so he referred to howard hawks a lot who did like to have and to have not and a lot of like those sort of noiry um like he discovered lauren bacall he worked with humphrey bogart a lot yeah um and so there's a for one thing, he wanted it to be John Carpenter's Halloween because the way that people used to have their movies is it would be like Howard Hawks's Have and Have Not or whatever like that. That's so interesting. There's sort of like the identity of the... So did John Carpenter doing that inspire like Wes Craven to do that? I'm not sure, but I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. He didn't really seem to see himself as an auteur in that way of like, you know, I have this style and I need to be catered to for my creative process, but he... he it sounds like he looked at it from a very old school look where it was like, well, yeah, it's like your name and your project, but you just go in and you get it done and then that's it and you're done. And and so it's sort of an interesting combo of like a little bit of ego and wanting it to be his brand and wanting it to be connected yeah. to him, but also he didn't need to be like the most special director in the world or whatever, you know? Which I find really interesting. No, it's super interesting. But I mean, you do see that a lot later with the Wes Cravens and that kind of thing. And even with the Rob Zombie on the remake. Like, That's the true. name of the director ends up becoming very, very important. I mean, it almost becomes a part. Like, it's Rob Zombie's Halloween. It's not just right. Halloween. Right, exactly. Despite the fact that it, it is 
also just called Halloween. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the new one is not called David Gordon Green's Halloween. It should have been. It should have been, right? Because it's not confusing at all to have Halloween, Halloween, and Halloween. I think they should just need to have the director's name over the over the title. Alternatively, it could have been Halloween 2, but then it would have to... There's two other Halloween 2s Yeah, there's well. two other Halloween 2s. <laughs> Um, it could have been the first Halloween. So almost, maybe it was smart of John Carpenter to insist on having John Carpenter's Halloween because that <laughs> the only way you can tell which others. one is which. <laughs> we have to use the full titles for all of them. God damn it! Um, but something else that I think is really interesting, uh, coming from John Carpenter's appreciation for someone like Howard Hawks, is that Howard Hawks is sort of famous for like the Hawksian woman, like a Lauren Bacall type, who's sort of a take no shit, like get it done badass it kind of sad though that it's like a man's name for a type well, of woman yes <laughs> that's true i guess ideally it would be like the ida lapino exactly woman or whatever but like there weren't a lot of female directors at that point in time unfortunately or just like named after one woman who is like really good at doing that type of role that's true which i guess would honestly probably be lauren bacall because she was usually so the like, person who literally was the hoxian woman the bacallian woman yeah we'll give it to lauren she yeah. deserves it so That's anyway, cool. the Bacallian woman slash the Hoxian woman. So, and I kind of see that reflected here, and I think it's a little bit due to his respect for that kind of movie and that sort of character, and not really the fact that he valued movies that had a strong female lead in it, and also the presence of Deborah Hill, who, from what I understand from interviews that I've read with people who worked with her, again, she's since passed away, so there's no like direct interviews with her that are recent or anything like that, but, um, but that she was a bit of a badass herself and on the assertive end of things, and, and that she didn't really take any shit either. So... Um, you know, it makes sense that this is really where the idea of the final girl as, again, Carol J. Clover, I didn't realize, but she's the person who originated, I, I think I mentioned her briefly on the last episode um, and earlier about her, her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, but this is where the term final girl comes from. She coined that term. Like, we kind of saw her earlier in, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Sally, but Sally doesn't really do much. Like, Sally runs away a lot. She can really flee, but she can't really fight. Like, she runs away. The only, like, she kind of like struggles a little bit but the, the reason she survives is because other men show up and save her yeah no she doesn't really do anything to save herself and laurie still needs help like loomis has to come in and shoot him to get him away from her but, but she still like takes her very domestic tools in the sort in the sense of like knitting needles and stabs him like she's yeah. like 16 maybe 17 in this yeah movie. she uses a coat hanger to stab him in the eye she uses his own knife against him and if he were a normal dude she would have killed him yeah because Probably she stabbed him in the, the throat and then in the eye and then in the chest. Like, Multiple times. <laughs> he should have been dead. Yeah. And then you have, like, the final girl in Friday the 13th. I mean, she puts up a hell of a fight. She decapitates a lady. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> she does do that. But and then you have, by Nightmare on Elm Street, Nancy has, like, this super elaborate plan where she, like, lures him into her dreams. Um like Sydney Prescott's a badass by the time you get to scream. Like, it, it's sort of like Lori opens that door and then everyone else can be amazing. Yeah. Which is really, really cool. It's so cool. And that, those doors open you up to having something like fucking Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Exactly. She's sort of the ultimate... I mean, they even in the very first scene of Buffy the Vampire Slayer sort of invert the idea of like, oh, the desperate little girl who needs help being like the badass who kills somebody. And of course it's Darla. But, but later on, Buffy is the person who saves herself whenever there's a problem. Yeah. So, I mean... In terms of like... I really do think in terms of slasher movies, like The Final Girl is a huge, huge part... And, like, especially the female, like, victim protagonist is really important in slashers. And, and Laurie's kind of the first true example of that. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. 
while we're talking about the final girl and the kind of archetypes that this movie introduces, we've talked a lot about sex and murder and the way that that happens in slasher movies, and this is kind of where a lot of people point to this for the beginning. All I can hear is sex and candy. <laughs> that Marcy Playground. Mostly because I heard it on the radio earlier today. But sex and murder... Which is, like, a kind of candy? I like candy more than murder, personally. Sometimes candy and murder go hand in hand. When? Halloween. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> so, um, obviously, the elements here are pretty obvious. At first, we see Judith Myers completely naked, recently having just hooked up with her boyfriend. She was kind of ignoring her brother to hook up with him, so she, her brother kills him. Or kills her, and then later on, all of these girls who are trying to hook up with their boyfriends are killed off one by one, and virginal Lori is the only one who lives, right? And we see this show up in later movies as well. Um, it happens in Friday the 13th. Absolutely. Kids hook up, and then they get murdered. It happens in... I mean, they kind of subvert this trope in Scream. Yeah. There's a lot of movies. But even, I mean, right after they have sex is kind of like when he gets fake murdered... That's true. And then shortly thereafter when the reveal happens. So it kind of shows up in screen, but it's like an intentional reference, sort of. Yeah. But you see it in... I mean, um, Halloween's literally the movie playing in the background when Jamie Kennedy is giving the rules, and the rules include, like, if you have sex, you you get murdered. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, and I think that when a lot of people think about slashers, they think about that angle of it as, like, horny teenagers getting murdered or women being punished for their sexuality. And again, going back to Friday the 13th, I mean, the whole reason it happened is because two counselors were having sex and let a boy drown. Exactly. Um, And I think that that's, I mean, it's a good thing to pick up on because it's definitely there and the subtext is there. But what I think is really funny is that when John Carpenter is asked about this, he was like, dude, Lori just didn't get killed because she wasn't preoccupied with something else. Like, all of these other girls were, like, scheming and trying to go meet up with other people and, like, trying to hook up, and they had all these other things on their mind, and Lori was just focused on babysitting. And so she noticed what was going on around her because she her mind wasn't elsewhere. And it wasn't necessarily because of a sexual thing, and he wasn't trying to put a moral component into it, but it was just like... I mean, Annie wasn't doing it for sex. Like, Annie was in a car getting ready to drive. Well, yeah, but she was gonna go... She wasn't paying attention because she was excited to go see her boyfriend. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean sex. She also just, like, dropped off the kid that she was babysitting. It was like, later days! Like, whereas... Lori spends the whole time, like, actually looking out for the kids and actually paying attention when things are getting weird. And, yeah. Like, she obviously, from the g- beginning, has sort of a better sense of what's going on around her. Like, she's creeped out by Michael more than the others are. Yeah. So I thought that was funny that everyone, like, a lot of people point to this as, like, the, the birthplace that of sex created and, this yeah. trope. <laughs> when it, it was completely unintentional. Like, that wasn't where they were trying to go. They weren't trying to be like, oh, like, if you're slutty or whatever, you're going to get killed. Like, they were just like... No, she's just not preoccupied with other stuff, which I think is really funny. Um, But also, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis also kind of talked about this as well, and and one of the reasons that she thinks that the terror works really well um, is because of how innocent Lori is, not just in a sexual way, but also in, like... She just seems very naive about things. Like, Like, she's very sweet and kind and innocent and whatever, I mean... Yeah, and, like, she smokes weed, but, like, she coughs a lot, and it's clear that she doesn't really know what she's doing, and, like... Which I think also kind of makes it better when she fights back. Yeah. Like, honestly, I'm surprised someone like Linda didn't fight back, really. I think it's because she didn't have a chance to. Right, but she didn't see it coming. I, I think I would expect someone like Linda, who... She's kind of feisty and, mm-hmm. like, stands up for herself against her boyfriend when he's making a joke, like, no, you go get me a beer, and she's like, fuck no. Yeah. And he's like, you're right. Um, I love her, actually. She is, She's... 
kind of mean to she, Lori, but she's also really fun. She wasn't that mean to Lori. They're all like a little mean. They're all like, you're a prude and no I men like you. Annie was meaner than Linda. That's true. Linda was more Linda like, let's just, get you laid. Exactly. Linda was trying to help Lori out. And like, well, she may have been misguided. Her intentions were there. Yeah. But she like, I wouldn't be surprised someone like her stood up for herself. Well, yeah. Lori seems like someone who doesn't stand up for herself very much, which I think is one of the reasons why it makes it better when she actually does. Like, it's really satisfying to see her finally be like, no, fuck this. Like, like when I'm it not matters, she this. can stand up yeah. for herself and she can fight back because she didn't really fight back against her friends. She didn't really stand up for herself in other ways. And now she's forced to. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis talks about how you have this girl with no life experience whatsoever and you take her and you put her in peril. And... We'll talk about it a little bit more later, but I think it's interesting, and I think it's very, um, in terms of defining her character for the next movie, the, you know, the, the 2018 version, her first major life experience is a horrible trauma. Yeah. And I think that that definitely does have an effect on her character, and I think that that kind of sets you up for the sequel, um, which is interesting. But there is, uh, before we, you know, part too far from things that uh, Halloween established in the genre... Um, camera work in this one is really interesting. Yeah. I liked, so even starting the very beginning, it's doing Michael's point of view, but then like Michael, at some point when you're seeing through his point of view, he finds his mask because he's, he's dressed up as a clown, Mm -hmm. which also, I think this is before clowns were supposed to be scary because this is before it. Yeah. Um, it would have been, because this came out in 78. So people might've had like a slight association with clowns because I mean, I think a lot of people are creeped out by clowns and kind of always have been. I don't think Stephen King really invented that. I think he just sort no, of worked on it. No, I just it. think that, like, a lot of the times when you see a scary clown in media, it's usually Pennywise um, or inspired by Pennywise when you see it, like, visually represented. Yeah. Um, or, I guess, recently there's Twisty the Clown. But True. Those, which is from American Horror Story Freak Show, for those of you who haven't watched that season. Right. But I think that... Pennywise, def- he was not the first scary clown, but he, like, defined the scary Yeah, clown. he's definitely, like, the clown you see in your nightmares. Oh, hell yeah. Um, but all that's to say that he picks up this clown mask and he puts it on, and the rest of the shot until you see him go outside and is seen by his mom and dad is shot between, like, the two eye holes of this mask. Yeah, it's weird. And it's definitely putting you in his perspective. Like, there's no confusion about what you're seeing and how you're seeing it. My only question is, a lot of the times when you're in this point of view, you hear Michael's just heavy breathing. Mm -hmm. Why does he breathe like that? It sounds like he's using, like, a fucking scuba machine. Like, he's just like a... Maybe it's the sound because the mask oh, would muffle it. You that know? makes sense to a Maybe that's extent. what it is. It's kind of interesting because when you put the audience in that position, you're sort of setting them up on the side of the killer in a way. You know, you're putting them into the shoes of the killer and you're not really giving them a choice about it. But what's interesting, and, and this happens in a lot of horror movies, is over time, over the course of the movie, typically the audience sort of shifts from being like, yeah, kill him, like get a cool kill in, to wanting the final girl usually to survive. I think that's really done well and we haven't gotten there yet, but in the new Halloween, yeah, they do that so well. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, well, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but yes, they do it very, very well in the new one. Um, but they kind of even do it with the POV situation in this one because at the very beginning you see Michael, right? But then by the time that Lori is running away from Michael, there are several point of view shots from her perspective. So it's almost like by that point, all of the exciting kills have happened and the only person that is still alive is the one person that you actually want to make it out. And so now you're allowed to 
you know, root for her. And now you can be on her side. But then at the end, when it's revealed that Michael is still alive, it switches back to his perspective. And you see through his eyes and you hear his heavy breathing. So it's almost that's like... that's how you get excited for, like, what's going to happen yeah, next? Yeah. It's like he's still out there. You know there it's not and, over. Right. You know he's watching. You see what he's looking at. You don't really know what's going on because you don't have the rest of the situation. You don't really know what he's doing, but you know what he's seeing. Yeah. And it's sort of like, it's going to keep going. Like, just keep an eye out for the next one. And from what I hear, it does keep going. Yeah, it does. Um, so you want to talk about the new movie? I, I would love to talk about the new movie um, because it is a fucking fantastic movie. Yeah, so um, the new Halloween, so or Halloween 2018, or... David Gordon Green's Halloween. Yeah. We'll call it that. I like that. David Gordon like Green's Halloween. It kind of rhymes. It does. It's nice. Obviously is directed by David Gordon Green. Um, it's actually co-written by David Gordon Green and Danny McBride? Yeah, and it's a also, very interesting choice. And also Jeff Fraidley is the other uh, writer. Um, the music is, again, by John Carpenter, of though. Of course, because that's the thing. John Carpenter fucking nailed it with the score. Oh, it's like, so good. That music is scary as hell. It's exactly what you want. It's super recognizable immediately. It's what everybody wants. Why would you ever change it? Like, if yeah. you ever, if, if anybody remade this movie and changed the, the soundtrack, it would be... Like, even if they tried to make it not weird synth that sounded super, super 80s. Oh, I forgot to say my favorite part of watching Halloween at home, the original Halloween, not David Gordon Green's Halloween, is that there's a point where, like, they open the cabinet. I think it's when they find the dead bodies, when Lori finds them. It's, like, this loud noise, and the subtitle is abrasive synth. Yeah. And... Honestly, I suggest watching all your movies with subtitles just because some of them are so good. Yeah. From eerie hooting to abrasive synth. Anyway, um, back to Halloween 2.0. Yeah. So it stars Jamie Lee Curtis. Again. Yay. Because she's great. And then she's her, so good. her daughter is played by Judy Greer, mm-hmm. who I really enjoy that she's getting into more serious roles. Yeah. And I think she's doing it well. Even though half of me will always just see Kitty from Arrested Development whenever I look at her. Judy Greer is just so good. She's good She's in, like, great every, in every role. single role. Like, even if a movie is bad, like, if Judy Greer is in it, at least Judy but Greer is going to be how good. How much better would this movie have been if at some point she yelled to Michael, like, say goodbye to these, and just lifted her sweater up? <laughs> that would have been a really weird take on the final scene, but I would have embraced it. I also kind of always, like, hear her as... Um, uh, Cheryl from Archer. Oh, yeah, I can see that. So, you know. She's played some great characters. She really has. And she's enjoyable in this, too. I don't think it's, like, the best role she's ever done. No. But she's really good. Yeah. And it stars, so in addition to her, um, stars Andy Matichak, who's new. Um, Is- Toby Huss plays uh, um, Judy Greer's husband. Cool. Uh, Andy Matichak is their daughter. Will Patton, Virginia Gardner, and Nick Castle are also in this. It was made for somewhere between ten to fifteen million dollars. Don't have an yeah. exact number on it, um, but I mean, it just opened this past weekend, yeah. And it's already made a hundred and three million dollars. So actually, by the time this episode airs, it'll have been out for two weekends. Yeah, but it's already made a hundred and three million dollars. We're recording this on a Friday night. It's been out for almost exactly a week, and it's made a hundred and three million dollars. It made seventy-seven million dollars in its first weekend. Not doing so bad. Also, it's really enjoyable, and I kind of want to go see it again. Dude, I want to go see it again, too. I thought about going to see it again in advance of recording this episode, because I was like, well, I could remember Time it better. Got away from us. It's also hella expensive to see a movie in Los Angeles. It is. R.I.P. Movie Pass. Yeah. So, we pick up 40 years after the 1978 Babysitter Murders. What's uh, 1978 plus 40? 2018, it's this year. Woo! I do have a slight concern, which is that 
40 years have passed since um, Jamie Lee Curtis's character was a teenage girl. Yes. She has a fully grown daughter and also a 16-year-old granddaughter. That makes sense, kind of, though, because let's say I guess she was, they all had them super young. They probably, like, if she had her daughter at, like, 20 and then her daughter had her daughter at 20. I guess. Or, and give or take a couple of years. Yeah. And, like, Jamie Lee Curtis, I don't think, like... She didn't, like, grow up to go to college and have a crazy career and stuff like that. That's true. It doesn't really seem like that. She probably got, like, married quickly after college or after high school and, like, had a kid. All right. Okay. I'll give it to her. They could easily have two kids in 20, uh, two generations Yeah, so it's not so much that, it's definitely not unbelievable in the slightest. It's just, like, they definitely had their kids young. Yeah. Um, so in 2018, we meet up with true crime podcasters. <laughs> yeah, we saw this and I was like, Maggie, this movie's just gonna be proof that podcasters ruin everything. <laughs> I felt personally so, attacked, um, but we're not doing an investigative journalism. Maybe we should. No. Can you imagine us doing an investigative journalism podcast? It'd be so bad. So they decide that they're gonna do one of these, like, reinvestigating an old crime situation. All a serial kind yeah. of. So they decide they're going to go visit Michael Myers. And they're going to see him at the mental hospital. And I got to say, they have not improved their representation of mental health care <laughs> in <laughs> the film since the original. There are literally people chained up outside screaming like animals, which is like, yeah, that's not good. Up. No. Um, that would be one of my other main complaints with this, is that they... Mm, mm. They're never particularly good about this. No. I think that these are supposed to be, like, specifically those who are so mentally ill that they've like really injured people in some ways yeah so it's not just like a regular ward where like three people who have like severe depression true i mean so obviously like, like all these michael people myers is pretty fucked up in, and like yeah. very serious ways so i don't think it's as bad as just like a haunted mental hospital where it's like oh no there are people who just like actually had problems here that yeah and they were all evil I think it's supposed to be implied that all of these people have seriously injured other people because this is also like a prison in true. addition to being like a place but it's yeah. still not great, that being said. <laughs> but so they go there and they meet um, the new version, I guess, of Dr. Loomis, um, who is Dr. Sartain, who yeah, is so Michael's... Loomis and the movies world have died. Does that mean yeah. the actor, I'm guessing, has also died? I think so. He was older. Donald Pleasance was probably in his 60s in the original. So they kind of bring in a new version of that, where they even reference that he took the job over from Loomis, and he's been working with Michael since then. He takes these two podcasters, uh, Aaron and Dana, a man and a woman. Aaron is the man, Dana is the woman. I realize both of those sound very gender neutral when you say them they on the podcast. They are very gender neutral, yeah. Um, so he takes them out to meet him, to meet Michael, and they can't get a reaction out of Michael, of course, because Michael doesn't talk. And so Aaron tries to get a reaction out of him by holding up the mask, which he's gotten from the Haddonfield police office. I don't think that you can just go to a police office and being like, I'm writing a podcast. Can you give me some evidence? And they're like, sure, here you go. Just take it away and just do whatever you want with it. Like, this is very serious murder evidence from, like, 40 years ago. But, like, it's fine. I mean, I guess on the one hand, he's locked up. So, like, what are you going to do? And it was 40 years ago. Yeah. So, still, though, that just seems irresponsible on the part of the police department. But what I love about this scene is that, like, Aaron is freaking out because he won't say anything. Which is like, duh. He did like a man just told you that he hasn't said anything in forty years, so like you should kind of expect that. Like you're not that special. longer than that because not since he was six years old, right? So it's been, yeah, it's been like almost sixty years at this point. So he's screaming. And I love this because he's holding up the mask and he's screaming and he's screaming, "Say something! Say something! Say something!" And then it just cuts to the Halloween main credits. Oh. And we went to a great. Maddie and I saw this together, and we saw it in a full theater of people who I believe were there to support a crew member. 
And people just, like, lost their shit when the Halloween thing came up. It was so good. Because it was perfect. Because it was, like, almost like the movie being like, no, he's not going to. You should know. It's Halloween. Like, that doesn't happen in this movie. Yeah. And I really like that. Oh, man. Even the opening title sequence was so good because it has the same music. Yeah, but they have... uh, So, in the original, they just have a jack-o'-lantern over the thing. In this one, they have a fully rotted down jack-o'-lantern that they have a reverse time-lapse photo of. So, it is, like, reconstructing itself. Which is such a great, like, metaphor for this franchise because the franchise kind of, like, <laughs> rotted away and went yeah. to shit and they're bringing it fucking back. Yeah. And they're gonna do it. Right? I loved that. I thought that was really, really cool. Um, so they, uh, they, they cut back to uh, Aaron and Dana and they're going to Lori's house because they want to interview her. And... Lori's house is a fucking fortress. Yeah, <laughs> she has, like, these crazy gates and stuff like that with security cameras, and they try to buzz in, and she, like, is not letting them in, and then they offer her $3,000, and, she's and like, so Come she's on like, inside. fine. Um, but even then, you get to the house, and it's clearly, like, very heavily fortified. There are, like, lots of locks. There's, like, a bar um, blocking the door so no one can get in. Like, she is prepared for everything. Yeah. And so she brings them in, and they sit down, and they talk, and they're basically, like, shitty, basically. And she kicks him out. <laughs> yeah, but they're, like, they want her to meet with him, and they want her to, like, they're, like, well, he's a human, and, like, we want to know his story, and, like, they're talking about, like, how she's had these failed marriages, and, like, what is it that, like, your child was taken away from you, so, like, what happened to you? And it's obviously, she has not dealt well with what happened to her. Oh, God, no. And she has this moment where she's, like, oh, so, like, he murdered five people, because, again, this is a restart immediately from the end of the first Halloween. It doesn't take any of the sequels into account. She says, he murdered five people, but he's a human to be understood. I got divorced twice and had some personal problems, and I'm just, like, a freak show that you want to interview. Which I liked a lot. I thought yeah. that was really interesting. Because um, I do think that a lot of times people are more willing to look at criminals compassionately in a lot of those circumstances than they are victims who didn't act correctly or whatever. Um, so she kicks them out. They're like, go sit down with him. And she's like, bye, guys. They do mention, though, that Michael is being transported to a different place that night. Yeah, and she doesn't seem into that. Nah, and she already knows. Like, she is very aware of everything going on with him. Yeah. Now, we've already been introduced to um, to Lori's daughter. Played uh, by Judy Greer. Played by Judy Greer, whose name is Karen. And she has a husband named Ray, who's played by Toby Huss, who is hilarious in this movie. Um, and then they have a daughter named Allison, who's about Lori's age from the original movie. So we find out that she has this whole other family, and we see her daughter Allison at sc- or her granddaughter Allison at school, and we meet her and her boyfriend, uh, who's this very cute boy whose name I don't remember. Um, and then another one of their friends, and she's kind of talking about their plans for Halloween night. Like she and her boyfriend are going to go to this party that the school is having this dance. And then afterwards, her friend and her boyfriend are going to try to um, hook up at the house that she's babysitting for. So there's a little bit of, like, the babysitter murders aspect happening as well. Kind of the same plans as the original. Um, And we kind of get to know them a little bit better. So then we see Allison sitting in class. And it's very similar to the scene from the original where Lori is in class learning about fate or whatever. And... And it's great because she is also kind of wistfully staring out the window in the same way that Lori is in the original. And... But instead of Michael Myers standing outside the window staring in, we see Lori. Yeah, and so she goes out. Yeah, she's waiting out by the car for Allison. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time we actually get to see them interact. And it's really sweet for the most part. So she goes out, and they obviously have a much better relationship. And um, in the beginning scene when we first kind of get introduced to Allison's family, she'd asked her mom if she'd invited her grandmother to dinner. And she was like, oh, well, you know, I can't get a hold of her, whatever, whatever. Um, 
but it's clear that despite the fact that her mom is probably avoiding her grandmother, she and her grandmother talk on a regular basis. So, and so Lori offers a $3,000 from the podcasters specifically to her granddaughter. At first it seems like, oh, she just wants the money, but she really wants it because she loves her family. Yeah. And she does still want to protect them and provide for them. Right. And the granddaughter, Allison, originally refuses it, but then ends up taking it because um, she's like, you can just put it towards college or something. And it's just, it's a nice little family moment, you know, even though... Um, Obviously, Lori has some problems, and Alice in that moment encourages Lori just kind of, like, move on from what happened. It was 40 years ago. Just, like, get over it, kind of. Yeah. And so Lori decides she's going to try and get over it that night by then going to see Michael get on the bus. Um, and so that night, that night they're loading all the people into the buses, and Dr. Sartain is like, I'm going and I'm sitting with Michael. And later we find out that the bus crashes, and... Everyone is able to get off. So um, all the patients are now, like, kind of wandering. And the scene is very reminiscent of the opening scene in the original yeah. Halloween. Yeah, it's a little bit different in terms of where they are. They're not right outside the mental hospital. They're, like, further down on the highway. But we see this kid and his dad are driving along. And um, the dad pulls over the car to see, like, what's going on and to go investigate. He kind of disappears, and the kid decides to potentially go out and look. And he has a gun mm-hmm. that he takes with him. Yeah. And he goes into the bus to find his dad. And his dad, we see, has been murdered already. Yeah. Um, he gets in the bus and someone pops up and he shoots this guy. It, took, it turns out it's Dr. Sartain, mm-hmm. who is shot now by this little kid. And this is happening on October 30th. Yeah, the night of October 30th. And so the kid runs back to the car and he's trying to call the police. And he doesn't know where they are because, you know, they're in the middle of nowhere. And before he can really do anything, Michael... Reaches up from the back seat, just the way he did with Annie in the first movie, and he kills him. Um, now, back in Haddonfield, they all go out to a big family dinner with um, Allison's new boyfriend, and Lori shows up late, and she's drunk. She's clearly been drinking. She, like, chugs a glass of red wine. She, she was watching watched. when Michael was put onto the bus, and she considered shooting him, but then ended up not doing it. Yeah, she didn't see the crash. She doesn't know about that, because by the time that happens, she's at dinner. Yeah, um, but she goes, she kind of has a breakdown, and goes, and then ends up leaving. But, um... Her granddaughter comes out and sort of comforts her. And it's clear that while Karen and her mother have a very strained relationship, Allison and Lori have a, a better relationship. Like, Allison realizes that Lori has some problems, but she still loves her and she tries to be very supportive. Yeah. The next day after this dinner that went super weird, Lori finds out that Michael got free. And the way that they tell you that Lori found out about this is that Karen, her daughter, comes home. And she's just bouncing around the house and you notice that like it's a little too quiet and they're like very nice house and there's like a creaky noise upstairs and so you're like oh shit it's michael he's here and then laurie comes down the stairs with like a fake finger gun and she's like you're dead karen's like what the fuck are you doing in our house mom it's amazing because there's so many moments where you expect michael to pop out and then laurie pops out instead (laughs) and in a way i mean to a certain extent for karen laurie kind of is a villain in her mind because she had this not so happy childhood growing up where it was kind of like a constant vigilance thing going on Mm -hmm. and it was always about survival and so it's nice because like if anything horrible does happen to her she'll be prepared which we'll see later right but the same time it's not exactly a great way for like an eight-year-old to live right 
And so she was taken away by Child Protective Services when she was 12, which is something I'm you can so about. confused as to why she was, like, how bad was it that she was taken away? Like, well, just because she learned how to shoot a gun? Her own guns, maybe? Yeah, I, there's plenty of eight-year-olds who know how to shoot guns. I mean, look look at Mean Girls, where at the beginning they're talking about the bolt-action rifle. True. I don't know. Like, they I don't really think that clear. understanding how to use a gun isn't a reason for Child Protective Services to be, take someone away. Yeah. Like, it has to be really fucked up for that to happen. So I'm curious if either they were stretching or if, like, it's supposed to be implied that Lori was, like, a lot worse than we even see. Yeah. But then we probably wouldn't like her as much as we're supposed to. True. But... Sounds like a plot device to me. Yeah. But so Lori shows up. She has a gun in her hand. And she's like, you guys need to take this. And Karen's like, Mom, get the fuck out. And Lori's like, no, no, no. He's on the loose. Like, I saw it. She's like, what do you mean you saw it? Like, she's still really mad that she had even gone there in the first place. And so they have, like, this big argument. And ultimately, she kicks Lori out of the house. Um... But then we get to go back and see our nice little podcaster friends who Mm -hmm. are getting some gas. And they're... Stopped at the gas station. They have the the um, mask in the back of a car, in the trunk, and um, they Dana needs to pee. Yeah. While Aaron is going to like fill up the car and everything mm-hmm. like that, and so <laughs> while Aaron is paying for gas, you just like in the background see Michael just like smashing someone's head in, just like kind of blurred out. Yeah. And we later see that it's a mechanic and the mechanic is now naked again because he just really likes stealing mechanic jumpsuits. It's I mean, just a very specific. Look, honestly. But he's, he's always so specific look. about this type of look to go for. Yeah, that's true. He has a style. He has a very distinct personal style. He does. So while Dean is in the bathroom, someone comes in and they're like knocking on all of these different doors and she's like, fuck fuck this is creepy big combat boots yeah and so the guy gets to the door and he's slamming on the door and she's like this is occupied which like girl come on Um, you're probably gonna die and so he reaches over the stall and he drops a handful of teeth oh god which are the teeth from the guy who had pointed her in the direction of the bathroom because he had ripped his jaw off basically and ripped all of his teeth out and she's like fuck this and so she's getting harassed like he's dragging her out of the stall uh, Aaron comes in at the same time. He gets beaten to death in front of her, and then ultimately... She tries to yeah. escape by crawling under the stalls, it which is work. actually an allusion to another one of the Halloween movies. Mm. I think it's for H2O. Um, but that was the 20-year anniversary Halloween movie, and there's a very similar scene in which people are attacked in bathroom stalls, and they try and crawl in between the stalls in order to get out, and it does not go so well for them. It doesn't go well for her either, because she gets murdered. Yep. And, and he, we see... Yeah, he takes the keys from them, and he goes and he pops up in the trunk, and... Michael has his mask back. And I gotta say, they play the music over it. He puts his mask back on. People I think screamed in the... They were, everyone <laughs> cheered so loudly. It was amazing. And it's interesting, because one of the biggest um, complaints I've heard about this movie is that they didn't show enough killing. Like, they want... Like, because a lot of these, like, murder scenes happen in the background. And you oh, just see true. all the dead bodies. You don't actually see the process of them being murdered. I didn't really see a problem with that. No, I felt like it was still scary. It was still scary. You do see a slew of murders later on. Um, It's just funny that, like, there's already so much blood and gore and, like, mutilated dead bodies and then, like, a spree of killings. I also think it's really funny that only five people were killed in the first movie and only four of them on screen. It's not that bloody. You see way more people get murdered in this one. Who do you see get murdered on screen in the first one? Because it's her three friends. And then her three friends. The sister and the three friends. And then uh, the oh, mechanic yes, yes, yes. is killed off You're off right. Um, but so the police come and they're like, shit, what's going on here? And Laurie shows up, of course. And she's like, guess what? 
It's Michael Myers. <laughs> yeah, we all know who this actually is. And luckily the sheriff is... It's not the same guy as before. He wasn't in the original movie, but the, his character is supposed, it's to, supposed to be. It's supposed to be the same character. Well, yes. Or he's supposed to... Because the, the police officer die. I think maybe dies later on or something, but he doesn't... Um, he's supposed to have been there on that night to help with the arrest. Yeah. Because he was arrested that night, supposedly. We just don't this see This is it. almost like a branch off, which is important. So it's almost like... Um, as though the second movie, which is a continuation of that night, did not happen. And this is as though they found him after he had fallen off the balcony. Yeah. So it's sort of like a branch off as of what would have happened if he'd just been arrested instead of being able to continue. Exactly. Free. And so even though we don't see him get arrested, this cop who is a really big deal this entire movie, like the main cop character. Yeah. Basically the Annie's dad character in the, uh, in the first similar one. guy. But anyway, yeah. um, he was like, oh yeah, like you're right. And we need to take this seriously. Mm-hmm. And they're all about like finding him. Yeah. And so now they have um Sartain on their side as well because he uh, even though he was shot he lived so he lived okay. and he he does wake up that day and starts helping out yeah in the meantime Michael makes his way back to Haddonfield and he's wandering around and at the same time that this is happening on Halloween night we have a couple other things going on one of which is that um Allison is at a dance with her shitty boyfriend. Oh, yeah. Her boyfriend, who was cute and seems nice in the first scene, turns out to be a total fucking asshole. Yeah, he's kind of a dick. Um, but it's really cute because they're doing Bonnie and Clyde, except she's Clyde and he's Bonnie. It's cute. She it looks really cute. good in her suit. She looks so good in her suit. Yeah. He looks less good. I was kind of thinking in hers about how Carol J. Clover also talks a lot about the masculine like the masculine nature of a lot of the um, slasher movie female like leads. And the fact that they have her literally dressed as a man the entire movie is sort of almost maybe a fun allusion to that or maybe just a coincidence. Um, but they look cute. But they go, um, his friends kind of dress as a devil, which apparently is a costume that is an exact copy of a costume featured in another Halloween movie as hmm. well. So there's a whole bunch of little Easter eggs hidden out through this movie. And at the same time, we also see her friend Vicky, uh, who is babysitting. And she's babysitting for the world's most precocious child. Who oh, he's is, so cute. He's his first movie he's ever been in. And he's Wait, a really? fucking delight. He's one of the he best parts of this like, movie. He like, improvised most of it. And, like, when David Gordon Green would be like, we need to do another take, he'd be like, nah, I'm good. Like, he was, like, in charge of his situation. Like, they have all this cute back and forth. Like, she's talking on the phone with her boyfriend. She's like, come on over and bring that alakazam later. And her and the little kid's babysitting. Like, he's like, I know you're going to smoke weed later. You're going to get in trouble. I'm going to tell my mom. <laughs> And I think she says, like, if if you tell your mom about this and I'm going to tell her about your internet history, and she's like, you wouldn't. And she's like, try me. And they agree. Yeah. And they, they go back and they, like, kind of cute argue a little bit. And yeah. They, like, she's like, by a... the way, you are my favorite kid that I babysit for. Yeah. And it's a really sweet moment. And at the, in the same time, um, during an argument at the dance, uh, Allison's boyfriend throws away her phone. He throws it into a... Like a bowl of pudding. Yeah. Because she saw him kiss another girl. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, he gets mad at her about the fact that her phone is ringing. Her phone is ringing because Lori is calling. Yeah. And uh, to be like, hey, come home. We're all going to go hide because Michael's free. Yeah. Um, but she never gets to hear that message because her phone gets thrown a bowl of pudding. And it would probably be helpful for her to have that because in the next few minutes of the movie, Michael kills like three people. He just yeah. walks into homes and fucking stabs people. He's literally going from house to house to house. Like he'll pick up a random thing, kill someone, move on. And he does it so many times. Yeah. So Lori is back at Karen, her daughter's house, and is like, okay, we need to get the whole family go hide. Like, this is the moment we've been worried about. Mm -hmm. And they are trying and trying and trying to call Allison, but it's not happening because her phone is 
been thrown right. in a bowl of pudding. Also, what type of dance has a giant bowl of like I pudding like a that? A punch bowl would have made more sense to me. It was a punch bowl, but, but it was full of pudding. Yeah, or something similar to pudding. It was thick and yellow. Yeah, very and, weird. Like, the Hollandaise fun- sauce. <laughs> Disgusting. A punch Hollandaise. bowl full of old Hollandaise sauce. Um, fucking weird. So, kind of right around the same time that she's leaving, we run into an issue at the babysitting house, which is that Michael is hiding in the closet. Um, and her boyfriend has come over, Vicky's boyfriend has come over, and they're having a cute time, and the kid is like, hey, there's a guy looking at me through my closet. And she's like, no, there's not, you're just being a baby. And he's like, no, there's a guy here. And she's like, okay, whatever, I'm gonna go look. And so she goes, and she tries to close the closet door, and it won't close, and it won't close, and it won't close, and she opens it, and Michael's there. And he grabs her, and he's stabbing her to death, and he's killed her boyfriend already downstairs in a very similar way to the way that he killed Bob in the first movie. He pins him up against the wall, and he shoves a knife through his chest. And so the kid runs away. He escapes. He escapes. Um, which, thank God, because the kid's a fucking delight. He's so nice. He's amazing. I love him. So af- right after, as the kid runs away, um, the police officer is there. Like, the police officer is looking around, and hears, like, shots fired, and hears that there's been screaming. And so he goes over to this house um, and kind of is, is lurking around. And he runs into Lori, who is just straight up and stalking Michael Myers <laughs> because she's a fucking badass. And... Lori actually sees Michael in the house, and she manages to shoot him in the shoulder, but he still gets away. Well, so first she sees him upstairs. Yeah. And, and she sees, like, and she's like, shit. okay, cool. So she aims straight at his head and hits his head, except it's a reflection. It's a mirror. Because it's a mirror. And he gets away. Yeah. But she does run into him again downstairs. And she's able to shoot him in the shoulder. Yeah. And then she and the police officer basically run into each other with their guns pointed at each other, and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? And she's like, what the fuck do you think I'm doing? And then they kind of team up from there on out. Um, and so then it's her priority to get her family to safety. So she's trying to get them all to go over to her place and hide in the secret safety basement. And they're like, not wild about leaving Allison out there, but nobody can find her. And all the police are like, it's okay, we're going to find her. So they go over to Lori's. So meanwhile, Allison is walking home from the dance after breaking up with her shitty boyfriend who kissed another girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's walking home with her shitty boyfriend's friend, the one who's dressed up as a devil. And he is. He really wants. He's one wasted. Um, but he's like, oh, I know a shortcut. We'll cut through these backyards. And she's like, well, this is a really shitty shortcut because, like, we're climbing over all these fucking fences. And it turns out he was just kind of trying to use it as an excuse to hit on her. And she gets pissed off and, like, hops over a wall um, and leaves him. And he's, like, drunk sitting in a backyard. And, like, this floodlight turns on. This motion activated. Mm. And Michael's just standing, like, off in the corner. And he starts, like, drunkenly talking to Michael. He's like, has there ever been a girl who you, like, really wanted who just got away? <laughs> uh, there's some, This is where the Danny McBride angle comes in. There's a lot of humor in this movie, it's honestly. Really it's really funny. It's really funny. And uh, at some point, they're all just they're sitting there, and the lights turn off, and they turn back on, and he's closer. And this happens, like, multiple times. And he kind of eventually friend, devil friend, realizes that Michael's not so much a friendly guy and uh, tries to run away and tries to climb over this, like, pointed fence. But he gets a little devil cape stuck. Mm-hmm. So in the words of Edna Mode, no capes. Yeah, so Michael fucking murders him. <laughs> yeah, and his face ends up, like, impaled on one of these spikes. And she thinks he's fucking around at first because yeah, Allison hears screaming. him. Yeah, she's like, oh, my God, stop being dramatic. Um, but then he suddenly stops screaming, and she gets a little worried, so she goes to check it out, and she sees him, like, impaled and sees Michael. And she just fucking runs. And she's screaming and crying. And I like this because in the original movie, Lori runs away from the house, and she's knocking on doors, and somebody looks out the window. And refuses to let her in. Will not let her in, closes the blinds, turns off the light. In this one... 
you see it and you think the same thing is going to happen because you see just her like pounding on a door and screaming but then you see her with the people who helped her standing on their front porch and the like talking to the police which I loved because I was really, really nice. mad in the first movie. I was like, why the fuck would you not let a screaming teenage girl I into know. your house? Like, well, I mean, she's like 100 pounds soaking wet. Let her in. She's not going to hurt you. See, and this is another, going back to the purge, there's a man screaming injured because a bunch of people are trying to kill him. Maybe that's a similar yeah. situation. I mean, obviously without the purge, but you know. Right, but like there's a danger out there. You kind of have to be daring enough to be like, maybe you're going to put yourself in a little bit of danger, but you're really going to help somebody else. Yeah. So, um, Lori and Karen are at the house with Karen's husband, Mm -hmm. who's kind of annoying, but a fine person, I guess. Yeah. Um, and they're waiting for Allison. We just they're in the basement. They like go down into the, she has this cool like island in her kitchen that like you press a button and it moves aside and there's stairs down to the basement and there's like guns and shit down there and all that stuff. So they go down the basement, they're safe there. And Allison is still out wandering. Well, now she's not out wandering. She's with the police and they're going to drive her to join up yeah. with them. And so the police officer that picks her up is the same one who was talking to Lori earlier. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Sartain is also in the front seat. And they put yeah. her in the back seat, not because she's a criminal, because it's like a, a police car, right. but just because that's the only real spot for her. Right. And so the three of them are driving, and at a certain point they actually see Michael on the road. And they hit him with the car. Yeah, the police officer speeds up and hits him with the car as hard as he can. And... Um, so Hawkins, who's the police officer, gets out and he's like, I'm going to fucking end this shit. I'm just going to shoot him. Yeah. Sartain does not want him dead. He wants him to stay alive. So he takes out his pen that has this little, like, switchblade in it. And, s- like, slashes the throat of the detective. Yeah. Because as it turns out, Sartain was not the new Loomis, as Lori literally <laughs> describes him in one part. She literally calls him the new hilarious. Loomis. Yeah. She goes, oh, you're the new Loomis. Um, he's not the new Loomis because Loomis understood that Michael was not someone to be studied or interesting. He was a fucking monster who should never be let out. Sartain thinks that he is a fascinating man who must stay alive and must be helped or whatever. He just wants to study what pure evil looks like. He's, I think Loomis was scared of Michael while Sartain was, is fascinated and yeah, intrigued there's by like him. a dark angle to Sartain. Like, Sartain wants to understand what it feels like to be Michael. And at a certain point, Sartain actually like takes the mask and puts it on himself. He's like, okay, this is what it feels like to kill and to be Michael. Cause he just killed. Yeah. Then he, um, then he picks up Michael, which also like, he's a small man. And then he picks up Michael. Who's like this at this point, 61 year old guy um he's big he's like probably like 6'3 he's a big dude yeah 200 something pounds but he sticks him in the back seat right next to Allison and this is a police car so there are no handles to get out in the back yeah she can't get out um but he is like supposedly very injured and maybe even dying he's unconscious at this point in time but he's definitely unconscious and Sartine decides he's gonna take them over to Lori and he's going to see how it all goes down when he brings Michael to Lori. His goal is to hear Michael talk. That is like his dream in life yes. is to hear him say a word. And so Allison says, well, I heard him talk. When he killed my friend, he said, he something. said something. And, if you, and let- if you let me out, I'll tell you. Yeah. And Sartain is like, what did he say? Did he say his sister's name? Did he say his sister's name? Did he say, like, he asked like 50 times if he said his sister's name. And she's like, well, I won't let you out. I won't tell you unless you let me out. And so. But then. Um, it's great because um, when he puts Michael in the backseat, he puts his mask right next to him. 
And at some point, I remember Allison like looks down next to her hand, and the mask is there. And then she, uh, like a couple minutes later, looks back, and the mask is gone. And she looks over, and Michael is alive and awake and has the mask back yes. on. So when Michael is awake, he doesn't actually start attacking Allison, unlike Surprisingly what you would not. think would happen. He goes after Sartain. And he is very strong, and apparently the mesh wire backseat area of the police car is not strong enough for him because Nothing's he... Nothing's strong enough for him. Basically punches a hole through it, and he manages to escape, and he gets out, and so she, like, runs past him, and she's like, fuck this shit, I'm going to the woods. Yeah, so Allison gets out of the same side that Michael gets out on. Sartain basically gets curb stomped. He Michael, does. like, pounds his face into the pavement. Well, Allison runs away through well, the woods. Allison, yeah. And so there's a police detail. They're very close to Lori's house. And they're in a police car now. Yeah. There's a police detail near Lori's house, and they see what's going on. Those police officers are like, let's go check it out. Yeah. Doesn't go well for them. No. So they, because it's it's still uh, Sheriff Hawkins' car. So they're like, oh, it must be Hawkins. Like, we'll go see what's going on. They both get murdered. Um, uh, Allison is running through the woods. And then we see, um, what is her husband's name? I have no idea. We see Allison's father back at the house, right, with his wife and his mother-in-law, and they hear a noise outside, and there's the... Well, they see a police car pull up. Right. And they're like, oh my gosh, that means that Allison must be here. So, so the he father goes out. goes out, and he's like, did you find her? And just like, it's the car. Nothing yeah. happens. And he's like, did you find Allison? He continues walking that out there, but it's not police. It's a dead body in the police. Yeah. And then it's Michael, yep. who kills him. So that's a bummer, because he's a really fun character, and Toby Haas is a great actor. He was a very good actor. <laughs> um, so he's down, and now it's just the three women. Allison is out in the woods alone. And she, like, stumbles upon um, Lori's shooting range, which is a bunch of just, like, fucking deformed mannequins that have been, like, shot or burned or, like, messed up in some other way. And it's, like, probably one of the scariest things to run into in the middle of the woods in the yeah, middle of the really night. Yeah, it's really super fucked up. But yeah. she's running through, and she's trying to get to safety. And um, Lori has seen Michael outside because she realized that Ray went outside. And she kind of tries to look, and then she sees Michael out there. Michael tries to break in. and Well, so Lori is standing at her front door. I don't know why she has glass windows in her front door. Because she has 10,000 locks, but she has two glass window panes. Doesn't make a ton of sense. Michael punches one hand through each window pane and strangles her. But then she has a gun in her hand and she shoots his gun and shoots like three of his fingers off. Yeah. And he lets go of her and she's okay. Yeah. And so she gets down to the basement. Um, and we don't know what happens to Michael. No. So Lori puts her daughter Karen down in the basement. She's like, I love you. Here's all the guns. Be safe. I got to go finish this for myself. And she goes back upstairs to find Michael. So she goes through the house and she's searching each room. And she has this really cool setup where she can bar off all of the rooms. Yeah, she has been planning for, like, in case something like this happened for a long time. Which, honestly, good job, girl. Like, yeah. hell yeah. Um, so she's looking, and finally she goes upstairs to her bedroom where there is a balcony and a closet. So is this a and bedroom, a or ton. is this a mannequin room? I think it's supposed to be a bedroom, but it's currently functioning as just a ton because of mannequins. Because I was gonna say, I hope this isn't her bedroom. Because if she sleeps in a room full of, like... Yeah, never really. Messed up mannequin. I would assume, based on the characterization, we see that she either sleeps in that room underneath in the basement, or that she sleeps, like, in the living room with a million televisions all around her and, like, a gun in her lap. Like, I don't think she has a cozy bedroom where she unwinds, That you would know? make sense, yeah. So we see the same exact thing as we see in the OG Halloween, where there's the balcony 
and it's open. It's like kind of this billowing curtain and all that shit. And it, it seems to imply that he went out that way. But she's like, oh, no, 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 no. I know better than this. So she starts like checking the closets and stuff like that. And it's a very dark room. She ends up finding something in the closet, but it isn't Michael. It's Ray, her son-in-law's dead body, which is very fucking upsetting. He's and still again, dying. Very much like a tie back to um, OG Halloween. where Finding she, her friends. She finds her friends in the closets in a very similar way. Yeah. And then Michael, who, I mean, he has like a creepy plastic white face on. It kind of makes sense. He'd be hidden very well amongst the mannequins, but he pops out and starts attacking her. Yeah. And so they fight and she goes over the balcony. And he, then all of a sudden we hear Allison who shows up. And she's at the front door. She's banging to get in. And so he like turns around after seeing like Lori's body on the ground because he threw her over the balcony. He turns around and then he looks back and she's gone. And it's exactly the same as Michael did in the first movie. And everyone in the audience was like, yeah. I know. It was amazing. Um, I think it's again kind of the idea that Lori to a certain extent has been stalking Michael for years. In the first movie, mm-hmm. Michael was stalking Lori. In this movie, Lori is stalking Michael. And she is the villain for him. Yeah. Well, in the first one, he is the villain for her. So they've and kind it's... of swapped places while he's still like technically the bad guy. Like He's the is... one hiding. Yeah. She's the one hunting. Exactly. So while this is happening, Karen manages to let Allison and then they get down into the basement. And they're like freaking out and they're like, what the fuck are we going to do? So she sees her old gun with her initials on it and she's like, I know what to do. She grabs her gun. She gives another gun to her daughter. They're both standing at the bottom of the staircase. So he's trying to get it off. He eventually just rips the whole thing off its hinges. And as soon as he's, he's not standing right nearby. You can't see him at first, right? He is somewhere off waiting. And... I love this so much. Karen goes from being relatively confident to going, Mom, where are you? Mom, I can't do this on my own. I can't do it. I'm too scared. I can't do it. And then Michael pops out because he's like, great, my time. And Karen goes, gotcha, and shoots him in the face. (laughs) Yup. And it's amazing. And I was sitting there. I was like, she's either an idiot or like the most amazing person in the world right now. I'm really hoping it's the latter because I was like hoping she was faking but I just couldn't quite tell because she was doing a really good job. Yeah. And it was oh, It's amazing. so good. And so behind him, after she shoots him, Lori's face emerges from the darkness and she goes, happy Halloween, Michael. And then she fucking shoots him as well. And so, or stabs him. I, th- I think she has like a frying pan and like smacks yeah, him in the face with the, it. They have a whole fight in the kitchen. Yeah, there's a but, huge like, she like, hits him kitchen in the face. fight. I think she stabs him. Like it's a whole thing. Finally, like he falls down into... The basement hole. Yeah, and so he falls down into the basement, and then Karen and Allison are running up. Um, Allison first, then Karen, but Karen gets grabbed by Michael as she's Mm -hmm. trying to get out of the basement. And Allison ends up taking Michael's knife and stabs him, like, two or three times in the arm, and he lets go. Mm -hmm. And they are able to get up, and they lock him in place because they have bars because Lori's the most prepared woman in the in the entire world they have bars that like you press a button and these bars cover up the the entryway so it turns to the into a cage yeah and so the entire and so and so Lori says like you thought this was a cage to hold you in but it was actually a trap mm-hmm. and he's just like looking up like clearly a caged animal right yeah. now and she Flips a couple switches, and all of a sudden, there's little pipes that start shooting out gas. And there's and a heating element. Yep. And everything goes up in flames. 
And so the women all run outside and they're able to kind of flag down a truck and get a ride back into town. Mm -hmm. And all three of them are sitting in the back of this pickup truck and Allison is still holding Michael's bloody knife and the entire house is on fire. And you see the shot into the basement of Michael just... Well, first you see him, like, looking up, surrounded mm-hmm. in flames. But then you don't. But then, yeah, there's another shot, and it's just, like, the same room, but he's not there. And then, over the end credits, you hear Michael's heavy breathing. And that's the new movie. And it's so fucking good, you guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. So, all right. So, to kind of do the same thing, David Gordon Green, who directed this, he's done a lot of stuff in the past. Um, he's done a lot of drama, so he did... Um, George Washington, his debut, his directorial debut was um, a drama, but he also did Pineapple Express. I actually haven't seen that. It's a stoner comedy. He did a lot of stoner comedies with Danny McBride. I, mean, I feel like there's a little bit of stoner comedy in this. Yeah, there is. Movie. Definitely the whole character, like her friend Oscar, the shitty friend who wants to bang her. Yeah, yeah. But then plus her friend is talking about like bringing over that like Alakazam. Yeah, that too. Like, there's, there's a, a lot couple of good it. jokes. Yeah. Um, her friend, the, the friend's boyfriend lights off a cherry bomb inside of a pumpkin. Like, they're all kind of obviously stoner. But, like, then the original crew was stoners as well, because they're driving around they smoking were. weed in, in very Annie's appropriate. car. Yeah. Um, so, there is a lot of humor in this. Danny McBride's history is obviously more in acting than writing, but he did co-write Your Highness with uh, David Gordon Green. Um, and he also co-wrote the shows Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals. Jason Bloom is the producer on this. Uh, this is a Blumhouse film. Yay! Yay! We love Blumhouse Films. We wish that he hadn't just said that thing about how hard it is to find female directors for horror, but we're hoping that he learns his lesson on that. I didn't even see that. Yeah, it's Ugh. a little bit of a bummer, but, like, come on, dude, you can do it. I believe in your we're ability to find some women to We're to find direct. some ladies. Um, but, so they'd worked together a little bit in the past. Actually, um, Green was supposed to do the new Suspiria movie. Um, which obviously didn't end up going to him, um, but they were kind of brainstorming on what the next project that David Gordon Green was going to do, and, and Bloom sent him an email that just said, Halloween? And who doesn't say yes to that? <laughs> and David Gordon Green was like, I think I, this means what I think it means. And the answer is yes. <laughs> um, and they really did want to make a continuation of the original, but obviously they had to get Jamie Lee Curtis on board. And as soon as she saw the script, she was like, yeah, I'm down yeah, for this. They had like a, David Gordon Green, I forget who he said, um, was working with Jamie Lee Curtis at the time. But basically like he got her phone number and called and was like, hey, we're making a new Halloween. She was like, I have to see the script before I say anything. And he sent her the script and then, like 7 a.m. the next day, he was like, she was like, Yes, I'm in. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> um, which is important because, honestly, this movie would not be the same without her due to in large part due in large part to the fact that, like, this whole thing is about how her character has dealt with trauma. Yeah, and I think that this is a much more, like, kind of serious look at, like, the PTSD that would be caused by something like this. Because, like, obviously, if you look at Scream, Sydney has gone through some shit, and she's not, like, living that happy of a life, but she, like, has been able to, like, live a successful life and get over kind of what happened to her. Yeah. Um, Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street, by the second movie, she's, like, studying psychology, and she's trying to kind of be in therapy to get over this sort of thing that's happened to her, but... You rarely see one, um, a woman as old as Jamie Lee Curtis is. Like, she's, they're just not usually the stars of horror movies. I think yeah. it's fantastic that you have an older woman as the star. Um, and then you don't really see how traumatic and the type of issues that can arise because of that as often. So it's yeah. nice to see something. Because, like, honestly, if that happens to you, you're probably going to be messed up for a long time because of it. Exactly. I mean... It's not something you just get over and you go to college. You're like, oh, it's okay, but this is going to be my major because of it. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting to see that, like, again, like we talked about earlier, her first serious life 
experience was incredibly traumatic. Like, she'd never had a boyfriend. She'd never had, I mean, you know, she hadn't really done that much in her life um, until this horrible, horrible thing happened. And she's having to stab this person who just keeps coming back from the dead. And he's coming back for her. And he's, like, obsessed with, you know, killing her. And, um, you know, even without the sequels, that's still a horrifying thing to go through. And so I think that was a really interesting way of, like reflecting that and once she's had that horrifying life experience she's not really able to connect with other people in the same way like it talks about she has two divorces like she wasn't able to be a good mother like it just really fucked her up for the rest and of her she life turns, like her granddaughter's national honor society award night into a panic attack about herself kind of yeah she clearly has a drinking problem um she's like drinking in the car while she's watching michael at one point her daughter says i thought you stopped drinking she like chugs her glass of red wine like She's dealt with this, and she's dealt with it in really unhealthy ways. I actually read a... Uh, I saw an interview um, that Rotten Tomatoes did with Jamie Lee Curtis where she talks about the character, and she talks about how she doesn't feel like um, Laurie had any sort of infrastructure, any sort of therapy or anything like that after this. And so she turned to, you know, trying to find comfort in men or in drugs and alcohol and how this kind of led her to the point that she's at now where she's just a sort of paranoid wreck who doesn't trust anyone. That makes sense. Yeah. Um... And I also thought it was very interesting that, like, like you mentioned, a lot of the stuff that was originally Michael's ends up being Laurie's in this. It's the whole Batman thing. It's like you either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain. Yeah. And it's sort of like she's had to think like him now. Yeah, because her whole thing is she's like, okay, what would he do if this? Like, what mm-hmm. if this? And so she has to constantly see things from his perspective, just like we do in the first movie a whole bunch of times. Yeah. Hey. Oh, I like that. Um, she has to kind of put herself in that place and figure out what he would do in order to find out how to best prepare herself yeah and i think that i think you really hit the nail on the head earlier when you talked about the fact that like originally he's stalking her and this one she's stalking him and i think that's why a lot of it gets flipped is that she is the one who has to be sneaky and Mm -hmm. conniving and stuff and And it works so well oh it's amazing and she's great i want to see this movie again like 15 times we should do it again let's see it again (laughs) And also, they're kind of both obsessed with each other because they're really the only two people who understand what that experience was. So in the second movie, the boy that um, Laurie talks about having a crush on, Ben, uh, actually gets killed because he is wearing an outfit that's very similar to Michael Myers, and he's wearing a mask on Halloween, and so he gets into, he's getting chased down, and this car hits another car, and he's killed in the explosion and whatnot. Um, so this kid, Ben, gets killed because they think that it's Michael. And so everybody else is just like, that's Michael. It's done. It's finished. And no one understands when Loomis is like, no, no, no. Like, we need to be sure that it's Michael. We can't, we can't just assume that it's fine. We need to be sure that it's fine. And that's kind of through the whole movie. Like, the first movie, Loomis is like, no, no, no. You need to make sure that it's okay. You need to make sure that nothing is wrong. By this movie, she's in that position where she's like, no, like. Well, because Loomis sure as fuck isn't doing it. Exactly, because he's dead. So she has to be the one who's like, no, he's still out there and you you need to be sure. And it's kind of that same thing where no one else believes it. No one else understands it. She's the only person who really gets it, which turns her into that sort of crazy. I can imagine if you were doing this for 40 or let's say 39 years and people like it's the whole cry wolf thing. You know, it's like she's saying like this is going to happen and she's saying it for so long that people just kind of stop listening and stop believing that's going to happen. Yeah. And then when it finally does, people don't necessarily want to believe it until they need to. Right. Yeah. Also, we didn't mention this, but throughout this entire second half of the movie that takes place on Halloween night, Karen is wearing a Christmas sweater. Yeah. Because she hates Halloween so much as a holiday, she's just ready to skip it and go straight to Christmas. Exactly. So I just think that's a beautiful little I love costuming that. decision. Because they kind of so well. reference it. 
that when they're talking, when it's like Allison and Vicky and Vicky's boyfriend, they're like, oh, why wouldn't you just skip it? Just don't even worry about it. And then later you do see her literally wearing well, trying to Christmas skip it, yeah. like she's trying to skip it. All right. So in terms of this, like, what is the same? What is different from this movie? There's a lot that's the same. There's a lot that's different. Plot wise, I think there's a lot more added. There's a lot more characters to care about. I think that movies just in 2018 often have a much faster plot and are less of a slow burn. Yeah. So I think that's just normal for the times, more so than the fact that it's a completely different movie. But also, I don't think they could just remake the movie. I think they needed to add some extra pieces. And yeah. You want to have Jamie Lee Curtis, but at the same time, you kind of need to have the younger appeal. So you need to have the granddaughter. And how do you have both and have it make sense? Like, there's a lot of really good reasons why. And I'm sure they just wanted to add a change up from the whole Loomis thing. So actually, another one of the biggest criticisms I've heard about this movie is so many people just feel like this Hartane plot is completely unnecessary. I don't think they're necessarily wrong. It, I think it would have been fine without it. It would have been fine without it. I don't think it takes away from the movie either. No. It's like fun. It's interesting. I mean, I could see maybe there's like an alternate universe. Like, I mean, we love horror. There are people, other people who love horror and might want to like recreate it in their own way and like cause fear for that reason you know yeah like i could see that like when you become so into something you might want to try experiencing it for yourself and obviously this isn't something that really happens or if it does i'm sure it's very rare Mm -hmm. but it is like at what point does interest turn into an unhealthy obsession yeah and i think that that's a really interesting point is that like loomis is a very level-headed guy but like not everyone is loomis not everyone can work with someone like michael and be unaffected by it right and i mean loomis is affected but in a way where it means that he is like hyper hyper vigilant there's also the implication that like sartana has been with michael for a lot longer yeah. because loomis has been doing it for the last 15 years sartain says that he took over he was a student so he knew Michael when Loomis was still working with yeah, him. Yeah, so he has potentially been working with Michael for 30 years. And he was probably a lot younger when he started working with Michael, so he's exactly. probably a lot more impressionable. If he was, like, a right. 24-year-old med student, I could see him being affected by working with someone like Michael a lot more than someone who started older like, and more established in yeah, his career. Yeah, because it's clear by, like, by the time that Loomis has started working with him, he's in, like, his 30s or 40s, you yeah. know? He's not as young. Um I saw, I read a quote by John Carpenter that I really like, which is basically sequels mean the same film. That's what people want to see. They want to see the same movie again. And I thought that this was a really interesting way of doing that because they kind of give you the same movie in the sense that there's a little mini version of the babysitter murders with Vicky. And then there's so much else built around it. And there's so much other like little sort of tweaks and more depth to it and more characters and more relationships between the characters. And I I really like that. I thought that was cool. That's why The Force Awakens did so well and The Last Jedi so many people didn't like is because they just literally wanted to see the same movie. Exactly. And then their expectations were turned on them. Yeah. Yeah. I think ultimately people kind of want to see what's familiar to them. And I think this did a good job of bridging that gap in a way. Um, Obviously, there's strong visual similarities. Like we mentioned, a lot of shots are more or less recreated. One thing that I really loved um, is the fact that they gave Lori a true final girl scene. Because as we talked about, later versions of the final girls get to be more active in their defense. And they get to be the ones who really pull the trigger and and, and end the situation. And Lori finally, after 40 years, gets to finally do some damage to him rather than just, like, not dying. Yeah, and, like, we don't know if he still dies, but... But she, she lights him on fire. Yeah, she <laughs> fights back. Because in the first movie, and she does attack him multiple times in the first movie, and she is very actively fighting back, but she's not the one to finish it. Right. Here, she is the one to finish it. And she's been preparing for 40 years to finish it. Yeah. And, like, 
No one else is there to help her. All of the police are dead. Like, the sheriff is not going to storm in. Loomis is not going to storm in. No one is there for her. It's just her and her daughter and her granddaughter. And it's three final girls yeah, it's kicking nice, ass. It's not, there isn't a final girl. It's just, like, women being badasses. Yeah. And I love it. There Give was, me more of this. Jamie Lee Curtis described this in an Instagram post as three tall girls taking on Michael Myers or something like that. And I was like, yeah, three tall women. Killing it. Hell yeah. I love it. Um, so Maddie, what did you, what did you think of this movie? I really enjoyed it as a sequel. I thought it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the inserted some humor into it. Yeah. There was a lot of fan service, but I think it still surprised, like it had enough surprises that it wasn't just like, oh, this is what we want and you're just going to give us what we want. It was something like, we're going to give you what you want, but in a way that you aren't expecting. Yeah. So I thought it was very well done and I really want to see it again. I also really loved it. The only thing that I kind of thought is that it would have been interesting to see, although they made it very clear that they're retconning the sibling thing that happens in the later Yeah, there's literally a joke in this movie about, like, oh, yeah, wasn't, like, he her older brother? And then Allison says, like, oh, no, that's just something that people made up to make themselves feel better. Yeah, which is that's what they do in the sequel. And they do take away that motive. When you see Michael going from house to house to house and just killing everyone, it's clear that he's just a person who has a desire to kill for no reason. Yeah. I did almost think that, like, if there was more of the... Lori focused stalking because like in the sequel he is very specifically trying to kill her that would kind of make more sense for why she's so confident that he's going to come after her again but I mean it also does make sense that like it's just that she tried to kill him so many times and he kept coming back so why should we ever believe that he's not going to just keep coming back also I mean he really only goes after her because of the fact that he is literally driven to her true and she sort of seeks him out she does I think that if she weren't actively seeking him out and if Sartain didn't literally drive Michael to her, there's a chance he might not have specifically gone after her. That's true. That's very true. Because he doesn't know who her... The only reason he tries to kill her granddaughter is because her granddaughter's out. Yeah, because he runs into them. Yeah, he doesn't know who that is. He doesn't stalk her to that extent. No. I think a lot of it's coincidence. And, like, yeah, he's super down to, like, kill the person that got away. It's, but I don't think it's like super. I don't think killing is super personal to him. No, I think killing is something that he actively enjoys and wants to do, and will do as much of it as he can. I think there's an implication in the first one that he's forming a connection between the relationship that she has with her babysitter kid, or the the kid that she babysits. Like she's like the a good sibling. older yeah. sister that he didn't have. There seems to be some sort of connection there, which I could almost sort of see going in that direction with it. Like he's transfixed on her because you know she's the first similar figure that he saw after he got out or something like that. But, but again, I don't know that you need that explanation. You know, I do, I think explanations and like trying to make a reason for why he is the way he is just takes away from the Halloween universe. And I almost feel like that was part of the point of this movie is that like literally Sartain is like, no, no, we need to understand him, and then he bashes Sartain's head in. Like, no, you he don't. doesn't want to be understood. Yeah. He doesn't want that. It's, it's just he just wants to kill. Exactly. I think that's very well done. Yeah. So great movie. Go see it. I love this movie. You should check it out. Give it your dollars. Go, Jamie Lee Curtis. I love you. Um, but with that, I think we're about ready to call it a night. Yeah, this has been a really long episode. Thank you guys for sticking with us. All right, so next time we are going to have a little fateful adventure of our own. And we are going to watch Final Destination. Which I've actually never seen, so I'm very excited Nor about Nor have this. I, although from the trailers, I will not drive behind any truck carrying logs. That is just common sense. Yeah, but I think that Final Destination really drove that home for a lot of people. Yeah. 
So we're very excited about that. We hope you guys really liked our Halloween episode. We had a ton of fun with it. Um, again, please go see this movie. It was really, really good. We and really loved it. And if you haven't seen the original, watch that too. Dude, check it out. It's, it's on, on Amazon. Amazon. I don't know if you have to pay for it, but if you if you do, just pay for it. It's you so do. good. It's cheap. It's like three bucks. Yeah, that's worth it. Um, and listen, uh, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate all of you guys. Um, we, we know that we've got, based on our SoundCloud listens, people from... Uh, several different states and even a couple different countries so we're very very happy to have you guys we listening. are so thankful for all of you and we hope you all have a very happy and spooky halloween you can follow us on twitter at sat 14th podcast and you can follow us on instagram at saturday the 14th pod you can check us out on facebook at saturday the 14th you can check out our website at saturday the 14th podcast.com um if you just google saturday the 14th podcast it's us. You'll find us. It has all of our contact information on there as well. Um, but we want to hear from you guys. We want to hear what you think. We want to hear what you like. Um, so let us know. If there's a movie you're dying to hear about, please let us know that as well. Um, and in the meantime, have a wonderful Halloween. Stay safe. Stay spoopy. Have an absolutely lovely Halloween. This is the one night you are allowed to take candy from strangers. And um, text us when you get home. We love you. Mwah! <laughs> <laughs>